It made me crazy Them squares just made me looser That wax just made me lazy And I still make this song And I'ma make another If you ever actually hit me Better watch out for my brother Better bet I'll take that deal Gotta watch out for my mother Get a watch with all that glitters Come in clutters Different colors Been a baller Been for butler Chauffeur Hit a stainer Did I stutter Did a ton of drugs And did better than all my own Cover past enemy lines, making everybody think I'm on the Christmas side. Rocking warm sweaters, hanging big ass lights. If the fat man can see me, yo, it's gotta look right. I watch all the TV specials that I never could. I'll even cry during the sad ones like James Bond would. And when the big night comes, it's time to set the bait. Cold milk, hot cookies, decorative plates. And he'll come down the chimney and they will be just him and me. But he won't know we're enemies because the plate's sincere. Bring a trap like that. Hug him tight, get on his lap and tell him he can come back every year. Because I am Jehovah's most secret witness. So I might have to dedicate my life to Christmas and act just like I love it till the day I die. Got a sore Christmas on the spectrum, none of your business. Thoughts too fast to comprehend, just wanted to write by my friends. If years were seasons, this December would be the December of our December. More blueprints than Howard Hughes, but if there are blueprints, how do we choose? We have to be happy to get to the end. We have to save Christmas to save our friends. We have to save Christmas to save our friends. We have to save Christmas to save our friends. Hey guys. Rapping? Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Director's Club Podcast Christmas bonus episode, which I am going to dub the Now Playing Network Royal Sampler. No, 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 no. Homer, you have the Royal um, Sampler. Oh, I win again, don't I? This is a rather lengthy collection you're about to hear. It's designed more or less as something to get you through this holiday madness, the long commutes, the freezing rain, or blinding snow. Or you can just listen to it like you normally do. Um, this isn't just a feast for thy ears featuring clips of me and Patrick this time. You can find a couple of those episodes in the archives if you so desire. Um, this time I wanted to highlight great moments in interviewing. If I can say the word again, interviewing. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just wanted to showcase some of the podcasts available over at NowPlayingNetwork.net. Particularly just the, the strengths that each of the hosts exhibit, um, you know, every single time. Up at the plate. <laughs> they really know what they're um, doing, and that's a huge reason why I employed them to be a part of the network, to promote their shows, to do what I can with social media, although it's more sporadic than I would like it to be. I'm certainly dedicated to giving people um, a heads up about great content out there. I mean, there are millions of podcasts at this point, I imagine, and you can go to iTunes, you can find so many great ones, but um, seriously, if you're a fan of Directors Club, I have a feeling you'll like, I mean, at least a couple of the shows that are on NowPlayingNetwork.net, if not all of them. Um... You know, and, and also I just want to say that you'll notice that four of the shows featured here only have a five to ten minute clip. And that's not to say I'm giving the short shrift or saying that I like the other shows more. It's really due to time constraints and kind of a, I don't know, creative decision in that I wanted to, you know, allow people to hear 
more movie-based uh, content, including supporting characters, which is why uh, that particular highlight reel is on the longest, besides, of course, the one that uh, involves my uh, experiences. But it's not to say that I am <laughs> saying other shows are less than in any capacity. I mean, honestly, nearly every interview that Jim Hankey has done, I highly recommend. And his show, of course, is Final Emergency. His most recent talk with podcasting pioneer and comedian Jimmy Pardo is definitely a highlight that I hope encourages you to check out the entire episode and many, many more that have come before that. Final Emergency is a damn great music podcast. And the same goes with, you know, Fresh Perspective, Movie Madness, Tracks of the Damned. I'm an immense fan of all the shows on the network, but if I included extended excerpts from each of them, this would be a nine-hour-long podcast, and this is probably going to go much, you know, much longer than your typical episode as is. Uh, so feel free to listen to it in chunks or on the way to the Christmas family. Uh, so I chose moments from these shows that really spoke to me, and ones that I think sum up the show quite well. Uh, and it's really designed in case you haven't heard uh, these shows, which I encourage you to do after checking them out here. So I will briefly introduce the clips, but obviously, as you can tell from the show notes, there's a huge chunk of time devoted to supporting characters by Bill Ackerman. And that's, again, not to say that the other shows don't deserve hour-long highlight reels, but supporting characters is catered to film culture. From a perspective I know you'll be interested in diving into, and you'll get a lot out of the excerpts there. And this is, again, a movie-based podcast. And he, uh, Bill introduces his own highlights, and it's really great. It's one of my favorite interview podcasts, period. And it's an inspiration for my new show, which you can find over at VoicesVisions.net. Uh, I did include a couple of great moments from Directors Club, mainly like some surprises that occurred, but mostly there are interview highlights um, that I've experienced that hopefully will entice you to subscribe to the new show, Voices and Visions, if you haven't already. So this is really just a Christmas gift in podcast form that I hope you'll find entertaining. Try not to skip over any of these great shows, because I fully endorse all of them. They will be returning in the new year, although Tracks of the Damned is on hiatus longer, potentially, due to Patrick's need to decompress and regroup before continuing his podcasting endeavors. We, of course, wish him well. However, he is featured here in this episode quite a bit, as you can imagine, because he's so great. So without further ado, thank you again for the support, the downloads, the iTunes reviews, and kind words all around, and of course, to all the wonderful friends and podcasters over at NowPlayingNetwork.net. It's an honor to include them in this highlight reel. I hope you enjoy this collection, and have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Now on to the Royal Sampler! The Royal, um, Sampler! We go down to the indie disco every Thursday night. To our favorite indie hits until the morning light At the Indie Disco The Indie Disco At the Indie Disco Yeah Hello 
once again, Directors Club Posse. Uh, first clip, first up is Jim Hankey's Vinyl Emergency. Go to vinylemergency.com. There's a live anniversary show taking place at Permanent Records over in Pilsen in Chicago. So if you live in the Chicagoland area, you can come. I'll be there to support the show, and it's going to be a great experience uh, to see Jim Hankey celebrate his one-year anniversary as a podcaster. Uh, so I'm not going to go too long like I normally do. And just say that um, this is one of the best music podcasts out there. Here's an example featuring uh, the great Jimmy Pardo of the Never Not Funny podcast. I mean, there's still the people out there that want to remind me, like, you know, you know, you weren't the first. It's like, yes, I understand I wasn't the first, um, which is why I kind of embraced the term pioneer in podcasting. It's like I, I at least blazed the trail, I think, and, and Matt Belknap and I did together, uh, of, course. of this West Coast you know, it, nobody else really had a podcast. Jason Nash might have had one, but then, you know, he stopped doing it like almost as soon as we started ours. And Keith and the girl on the East Coast were doing one. And uh, there was a, uh, these other two funny people called uh, Dawn and Drew. Who I don't even know who they are, but they had a podcast. that was pretty successful back when we started. But then now to that, like you say, like, you know, here comes Graham Elwood has one and Paul of Tompkins has one and Paul Gilmartin has one and Greg Barrent has one. And all these were guys, Doug Benson, all these people were people that I said, want to come on my podcast. And they were like, I don't know what that is, but that sounds, I like riffing and having fun. Right. Um, so to that end, I, yes, it, it is, uh, it is neat. The small little bitterness in me or sour, gra- sour grapes in me would probably appreciate being listed with Mark Maron and Sarah Koenig when they talk about podcasting. Right. Um, but you know, whatever. I got my fan base. People seem to enjoy me. Right. <laughs> well, um, you're nothing if not humble, Jimmy. It's it's uh, great to. Uh, <laughs> you're you're kind. I've never worked in a record store, but I, I've always had that you know feeling. Whether even it's a a real hipster one, you know, where they don't talk to you much, or right. you know, all the all, all the stuff that I hear about talking with, especially you know guys who are either in the industry or. Um, just collected records in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, there's just something about the record store experience then that I wish I could have really held on to or, or been a part of um, back then because you'd get recommendations from people. You'd you did. See, you'd see the artwork. You'd see the, the flats and stuff. It was just much more of an experience. You know, um, I, I hate to sound old manish, but it's just, just so much more of an experience being in a store getting those recommendations from actual people versus like going onto a playlist and saying, Oh, you like this, then you'll like this. And then you don't. And, then, um, and, and add to that, you have the human interaction where, you, you know, not only are you looking at it, you're, you're, you're talking about it. And then maybe that leads to talking about something else. And then before you know it, you're walking out with three CDs or three albums instead of just the one you came in for. Maybe you're not even coming, walking out with the one you came in for. Um, right, exactly. And when I worked with those two years, we, there were three record stores in the mall. There was, Ours, which was JR's music shop, there was a place called Record Bar, which was also a great chain. Um, the thing about JR's that was great, and then the third one was Musicland, which was obviously Musicland, which is just a corporate record store. Um, right, right. We were a chain, but each store had its own personality. We were, we, you know, we were required to do the, you know, the various things that a chain would, you know, want you to do. But it was almost like a franchise where we. Uh, well, we had no stake in the place. We were able to run our store the way we wanted to run our store. And so while we were in a mall, we more or less were an independent record store. And, mm-hmm. you know, so people would come in, like you say, for, you know, for recommendations. And it, we weren't just a stop in the mall like Musicland was. 
and record bar was kind of in between the two. They, you know, they leaned independent, but they also leaned a lot more towards the corporate. And then, like I say, music land was just, you know, it, it, it you know, it might've been, well, been selling sweaters. It didn't matter. It was a chess game, right. you know? Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. So that was what was neat. And, and doing those two years, and I've said this probably too much, there was nobody in the mall cooler than the guys that worked at the record store. Um, right. And I was a guy who, in high school, was never cool. I'm not cool now. Um, <laughs> but for those two years at Lincoln Mall, the, you're the coolest. You're, you know, the girls wanted to hang out with the guy that worked at the record store. The guys wanted to work at the record store. Like it was, it was just something magical about that time in music and you know, being a certain age and working at a record store. Yeah, it's something I wish that I could have experienced. Uh, yeah, then. I wish you could have too, yeah. man. Okay, parfait. All right, let's get back to some uh, discussion on film with the one, the only fresh perspective uh, featuring Jeff and Rebecca, who put together kind of a, a forum of sorts that takes place live in an apartment, and uh, one or two guests will join them to discuss a particular monthly theme that they choose. And uh, it's, yeah, again, bi-weekly, but uh, every month they choose a theme, and then every two weeks you get an episode that's correlated to that particular theme. For example, uh, they did a uh, series on interlocking stories, and of course, you got to talk about uh, Robert Altman's Shortcuts and Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. But for this highlight, uh, again, Patrick Rapole joined them for the horror month of October to talk about the great Carnival of Souls, which Patrick might have, at this point, appeared on four separate podcasts, including his own Tracks of the Damned, to talk about this extraordinary piece of... Um, of filmmaking in every way, shape, or form. It's one of my favorite films, and I loved this episode to death, uh, particularly what Patrick has to say here about the film. But once again, Jeff and Rebecca put together a great show, and I wanted you to uh, get a glimpse into Fresh Perspective. And here it is with the Carnival of Souls episode, also featuring uh, Chicago film lover Angela Sherson. Once the ending right. happens, you go, oh, now it all makes sense. Yes. You watch this movie three, four times, and each time you'll be uh -huh. like, wait, so why exactly? Yeah, and it's, yeah. And, that's so true. And that is, that's actually true of a lot of later Italian uh, horror films, especially in the 70s. Mm -hmm. They would really operate on the idea of a lack of logic or a dream right. logic where you weren't exactly sure why anything was happening at any given uh -huh. time. And uh -huh. it sort of accesses this other part of your brain if you allow it. And it starts to feel beyond real. It's not supposed right. to be realistic. It's hyper real. It's yeah, I, surreal. Yeah, I think there was one quote in the movie that kind of summarizes the movie perfectly, and I thought it was such a beautiful line. I have I have it up here, and it's Mary. She was talking to mm -hmm. the, the douchebag guy in the morning. <laughs> His name is John. By I okay. I'm yeah. yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> also known as douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so she says to him, "It's funny." The world is so different in the daylight. In the dark, your fantasies get so out of hand. 
but in the daylight, everything falls back into place. And I feel like those couple lines yeah. just summarize the whole movie. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good. Um, I think one of the things that strikes me the most about the film is mm-hmm. it has a kind of, it has an, a, a surreal quality that seems not artificial or right. you know intellectually placed on it. Mm-hmm. It, it. It just kind of, it, it, it comes from the, a real place of, of like a, dream logic, like Patrick was saying, and a kind of uh, uh, aspect of the unconscious or of barely articulated fears Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I found to be much more potent than, you know, the... uh, another film about, you know, a scary serial killer or, you know, some, some... Person who's chopping up teenagers or something. I I think I think there's also a lot to be said, and this is I think it's sort of an underrated aspect in film in general. But there's a lot Mm -hmm. to be said about the sort of alchemical quality that film has, which is there is no one reason any movie is good. You can have a good script and make it a bad movie because movies aren't just the sum of their parts; they're the way that all of their parts work together. Uh And Carnival of Souls is the one of the greatest examples of that because the individual parts of Carnival of Souls are like. Well, it's like kind of just like a Twilight Zone ripoff right. movie or something that would be on Lights Out or Suspense or like an old radio horror show. Uh-huh. It's a pretty obvious twist ending you see coming along the way. But, well, the acting isn't so good. And like, well, they clearly didn't have much money and the cameras always stay put. And all uh-huh. of the indoor scenes are clearly shot on the same sound stages that you would shoot an industrial film. But the way that, and I think it is the music that sort of ties it all together, Mm -hmm. but like the way everything kind of works with each other in this movie, it creates something that's way better and way more grand than any individual aspect of it. Yeah, and I I have to say the cinematography was really good. Mm -hmm. Like, especially the parts when, you know, I think one of my favorite parts is when she's walking around like the carnival just by herself and it's like daylight and then there's like the shadows. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's some really interesting POV shots that uh, uh, apparently seem to be from the POV of the the spirits or the ghouls who, you know, live in the carnival watching her. Right. There's a lot of, like, you know... From behind a column or through yeah. through a partition, very Hitchcocky kind of voyeur kind yes. of shots. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. this, and this was you know two years after Psycho, and it, and it is also about this like beautiful blonde woman who drives a very long way on the highway and ends up in a place where her worst fears come to her. So right. there's a bit of that Psycho influence there too. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, so the yeah. other thing, and this is something that yeah. only from watching this movie so much, I've begun to read into it, and I wouldn't yeah. for a minute suggest this is what Hart Kirby intended, but. Right. I also think that movies don't necessarily what the artist's intent is doesn't necessarily matter. Right. I but there's, agree a, more. there's a couple ways yeah. that I read this movie and one way is like I, I'm someone with depression and I often kind of f- have that feeling of Mary w- where everyone is just like hi duh and I just like want to be away from everyone yeah. and I can come off as like kind of cold or harsh to people just yeah. because like I don't I don't belong there and uh-huh. I don't want to deal with all that. Uh-huh. Um, and, but also the feeling of just like, am I just like fading away? Like, like am I, is yeah. my shunning of people, you know, just sort of making me disappear from the world? You know, right. you, you, I, the, uh, I think the priest at one point says like, you can't stay in isolation from the human race. Right. So, like that's a, that's a thought I have all the time. That's like a in my theme own life. throughout the film. 
once again, you can find all these shows over at nowplayingnetwork.net, including Eric Childress's movie Madness. Now, Eric's a guy I've known since the year 2000. I remember vividly when he put Castaway as his number one film of that year. That was probably the first time we connected over the phone through Nick DiGiulio's radio show on WGN, of course. And we've been good pals ever since. And he supported me in a lot of endeavors, and uh, he's been a great help, a great friend, great support, and I always enjoy talking with him and having him on Director's Club, and he will be on again when we do our best of, uh, wait, hold on, 1987? Yes, next year. (laughs) Next year we'll be doing with um, another best of retrospective episode where we go back 20 years and talk about the year in film that was. So that'll happen alongside Colin Suter. But Eric Childress's movie, Man, this has been a great success, uh, in big part due to his frequent contributor, who's now uh, a weekly correspondent slash guest, and that would be the great Sergio Mims. Uh, He also hosts a radio show with the call letters that is escaping me right now, but you know, they're just great together. They have great chemistry. I always enjoy their segments together. And Eric has a fantastic movie podcast that focuses on stats and box office and reviews, Blu-ray releases, more contemporary discussions on what's going on in current events and films. So give Movie Madness your ears and enjoy this particularly interesting insight to when the controversy surrounding Nate Parker and Birth of a Nation was taking place. Both Eric and Sergio had um, a rather fascinating and enlightening conversation about art and controversy. So here is a segment from episode 24 of Movie Madness. But in terms of Birth of a Nation, it's over. It may get some nomination, but they do, voters don't like controversy attached to a movie. Right. They don't like it. It scares them. Look what happened to Selma, which I think was a hit job, a blatant hit job. I don't know who set it up, but it was a blatant hit job to re- to uh, lessen its Oscar chances. I think what happened with Hurricane, or I should say The Hurricane, I think what happened with Argo, but it didn't work with Argo. It didn't stick, mm-hmm. you know. And I think what happened with A Beautiful Mind, that didn't stick either. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But in this case, and particularly in this environment, and because the persons involved and what happened, Oscar chances are dead. Yeah, it seems to me that, you know, once, you know, it it was one thing for people to be a little sketchy after the deadline interview. Once, as you, you sort of rightly suggest, once it came out that the victim killed herself. Nate, Nate Parker's chances was were, was dead. Uh, whether or not Fox Searchlight continues to beat the drum, and they, they they have no choice. You can't just abandon the film now because I think that leads up. To, you you don't want to come off as completely cowardly because at the because this right, brings especially the money the money they spent on it. Right, right, exactly. You can't just dump the thing. You have to at least try to get out there from a business standpoint. Just try to get the film out there, get you know, make the money back, get the film on the Oscar radar, and some people will probably, they'll probably, it'll still garner not, uh, votes, particularly amongst critics, right. possibly. It leads into, I mean, well, for one, it, it's going to be again ironic that of all the, the the film now that will replace Birth of a Nation at the Oscars is Fences. 
Denzel Washington directs the movie, and he's the one that brought Nate Parker into the fold to begin with, with great debaters. Hey, you know, life is like that, ain't it? Yeah, it's 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 funny. Poetic justice, some might some might say. This is true. Life. People who do things you admire, who are who are awful people. You go. You have to reach a point where you have to separate them. You know. You can look at someone's arc. Uh, art or what they've created or what they've built and say, I admire this. I don't like the guy. You have to do that. I mean, it's because that's what, for example, Howard Hawks was a notorious, reported a notorious anti-Semite. Notorious, right? Though he worked with many Jewish people like Jack Warner and other people he worked with. Does that mean that I'll never watch The Big Sleep again? Of course I will. I just watched it a few weeks ago, you know. It's, uh, you, you can't... You, you have to put your mind into a, a different way. Like, for example, um, I, I tell people, people don't know this, and I tell people the other day, if you're Jewish, for example, should you drive a Ford car? And the reason I say that is because Henry Ford was also a notorious anti-Semite. He wrote a book in which he blamed all the problems of the world on Jews. He wrote a book about this. And he gave he gave a copy of the book to every employee who worked for him at the company. So I can so your Jewish person said, Well should you drive Ford, you should protest Ford because of what the guy did. Well you can't. You drive a Ford because you like Fords. You can't separate you can and you have to separate the art from the artist, no matter how despicable the artist is. You have to do it. Because if you don't, then you won't watch anything. <laughs> That's true. It is true. You really won't watch anything. You won't watch anything. You talk about Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson has uh, Hacksaw Ridge coming out. It's testing through the roof. People really love this picture, according to test screenings. Yeah, say what you want about Mel Gibson, but the son of a bitch knows story structure. I do what I have to do. This is when I say my love you. This is when I say my love you. I do what I have to do. This is when I say my love you. This is when I say my love you. And if I One of my favorite singer-songwriters recording music today, that was Frankie Cosmos, uh, who put out a fantastic record this year. Uh, I don't know if I'll be doing a best-of-music retrospective like I have in years past, but uh, have no fear, I will let you know via the uh, Facebook page if uh, I post a playlist. I know my favorite records of 2016 is available at VoicesVisions.net, so you can check that out. Um, and right now, we're going to hear from Patrick Rapole when he did an interview for uh, what is now his latest episode uh, on Blood Feast. He got to talk with the late, great Herschel Gordon Lewis at the Music Box some years back and just included this uh, excerpt and in interview with him. Uh, fairly recently for his own podcast, Tracks of the Damned. And as you know, Patrick is a great guy, a great f- a 
talent in so many ways that it's hard to just put him in a box and say he is this. But uh, in terms of conversing about film, expressing his passion, uh, dissecting it, uh, really looking deep into what makes a good film and why uh, sometimes it doesn't work for him, I just think he's one of the best quote-unquote critics out there. But uh, definitely a great friend of mine, and there's no doubt that this interview with Herschel Gordon-Lewis is a, uh, is a particular highlight done at the Music Box here in Chicago. Um, and be sure to check out all the rest of his movie commentaries for horror films uh, through Tracks of the Damned. Uh, I'm on the Jacob's Ladder episode, Bill Ackerman's on the Messiah of Evil episode, uh, Gabe Powers, uh, Chris Olson, a number of fantastic guests, Regina Berry, of course, Got to check out Tracks of the Damned. And here's um, an excerpt of a great interview that Patrick did. Three, two, one, play. Now, one of my, my favorite quotes from you was uh, ever is, Blood Feast was like a Walt Whitman poem. It was no good, but it was the first of its kind. <laughs> well, that goes back to my, my roots, as you may know. You know too much about me. <laughs> I started my career as a school teacher. I taught English literature at Mississippi State. And I felt when I started that, that would be my life. And there's a definite benefit, by the way, in the world of academia, and that is especially teaching poetry of the Victorian era. Robert Browning is not about to write any more poems. One set of lecture notes lasts a lifetime. In the world in which I now exist, in which my principal source of income is not movies, it's from my other career in, the, in marketing. As you may know, I've written 32 books. In the world of marketing, I have fame. In the world of movies, I have notoriety. And that explains the difference between living well and having a good time. Yeah. And I'm lucky enough, I guess, to have both. Well, what I, one of the things I really like about that quote is, um, you know, it's one of the things I really like about you as a person is you, uh, you sort of, you have no... Um, you have uh, you, you have no illusions about the kind of movies you make, but you still are very proud of their part in film history. Well, I left my ego at the door. Yeah. I had no idea ever when we were making Blood Feast that the movie would be regarded as a, a milestone. I, I thought it might be a millstone, but not a milestone. And I've been asked if you'd known what a trend you were starting that you were originating a new genre of movies, would you have spent more money on that movie? You talk about an impossible question. Who could ever predict what was going to happen in a case like that? My answer would have to be no, for two reasons. One, it was self-financing. I didn't have some studio saying, hey, we got an idea here, and you, you, can, you can make that idea come to life. Uh-uh, I didn't have that benefit. It was my money at stake. Number two, I knew perfectly well this movie was experimental. I knew perfectly well that it might just sit in a vault somewhere, never, ever being exposed either to an audience or, for that matter, to a theater that might have the bravery, the courage to foist it onto an audience, that it did what it did. Yes, of course I'm proud and pleased, but who could have predicted that for a a movie that cost nothing to make with a cast of nobodies shot with obsolete equipment. Somebody said to me, 
That camera of yours, I had a great big old Mitchell camera. Said, that camera should be in the Smithsonian. And I said, where do you think I got it? <laughs> so, if you see, as I say, you leave your ego out of it. I know people today, they don't make movies, they give birth. And you criticize their movie on any ground, whether it's technical, from the viewpoint of acting capability, or locations, or effects. You're criticizing their child. They've given birth. <laughs> I don't take that point of view at all. That's why, on the new movie, the one we just finished, which is called The Uh-Oh Show, I, at least 10% of that finished movie didn't exist in the original script. Because one of the rules I try to apply and enforce on the set is anybody's suggestion is taken seriously if it's given seriously. And the result usually is an improvement in what we started with. They can't do that in major films. I've been on their sets, and you can't, don't, can't open your mouth. It's too much money at stake. <laughs> well, too much, no, I'll go back to my original word, too much ego at stake. Oh, I see. Hi, welcome to Supporting Characters Clip Show. I'm Bill Ackerman. Uh, so what is this? Uh, for any listeners who don't know my show, here's a story. Uh, Jim Laskowski invited me on as a guest on his Director's Club show a number of times, and when he created the Now Playing Network, he invited me to create a show of my own. Uh, at first, I thought about doing something similar to what I was doing on Director's Club, either talking about directors or films. Uh, so I started thinking about the people that I knew I would have on as guests, and everyone that came to mind had these different pursuits in the world of film culture. Everybody was either a writer or a film programmer or a podcaster or involved in documentaries about films or working an exhibition, publishing a zine, and so on. And so I thought, that's a show I want to do. I want to highlight the things that they do and maybe see film culture through their eyes, through their experiences. Um, most ambitious idea I had was that it would indirectly document at least the aspects of film culture that I was paying attention to and maybe even inspire a handful of people to pursue creative ventures themselves. My episodes tend to range from around 90 minutes to yeah, close to three hours. Uh, it's not really designed to be a soundbite show. Uh, what you're about to hear is an hour or so long highlight reel that's really only intended as a sampler. Uh, hopefully you'll check out the full episodes, which are free, and to my mind better than a curated but still out of context set of snippets, but I'm biased. So who will you hear on this? Um, some people are in here twice, but in order of first appearance, you'll hear... Joseph A. Gervaisi, the co-founder of Exhumed Films, co-owner of Diabolic DVD, and the creator of the Loud Fast Philly Project. Daniel Bird, a film scholar and documentarian best known for his work concerning filmmakers like Andrzej Zawowski and Valerian Borobczyk. Travis Crawford, film programmer for Danger After Dark, writer from everything from Fangoria to Film Comment to Fandor. Danny Perry, author of books like Cult Movies and Guide for the Film Fanatic. Jim Laskowski, host of the Director's Club and Voices and Visions podcast, founder of the Now Playing Network. Jeremy Ritchie, editor and co-creator of the quarterly print journal Art Decades, author of an upcoming book on actress Sylvia Christel. Kayla Janice, film programmer, publisher, and author of books like House of Psychotic Women. Mark Walkow, the DVD and Blu-ray producer for companies like Criterion Collection and Arrow Films, writer and film festival programmer. Violet Luca, film critic, digital editor of Film Comment Magazine, and the host of the Film Comment Podcast. J.A. Kurzweil, uh, creator of the Hysteria Lives website and host of the Hysteria Continues podcast. 
Daniel Griffith, founder of Ballyhoo Motion Pictures and director of many documentaries about individual films and filmmakers. Sam Deegan, writer and associate editor at DiaboliqueMagazine.com, creator of the Satanic Pandemonium blog and co-host of the Daughters of Darkness podcast. Heather Drain, writer for Mondo Heather, video watchdog, Dangerous Minds, Art Decades, and now the music and culture editor at Diabolique Magazine. Mike White, the creator and editor of Cashier's to Cinema and host of the Projection Booth podcast. Eric Bresler, chief curator at the Philomoca Art Space and founder of the Cynadelphia Film Festival. Jay Jackson Rowe, founder of TNP Studios and the host of the Black on Black Cinema and Nerdpocalypse podcasts. And Patrick Rapal, former host of Directors Club and the current host of the Tracks of the Damned podcast. So, what about the sound quality? Uh, they... These recordings were done everywhere from apartment bedrooms and kitchens at video store counters over Skype with people based in the UK and Australia. I've had cats, dogs, birds, ghosts, <laughs> urban street traffic, uh, not so coordinated construction workers, you name it, uh, all making cameo appearances. Um, hopefully these clips don't have anything too distracting in them. Uh, you can find the full episodes at the nowplayingnetwork.net site or on iTunes. Anyway, here's some clips from my show and thank you for listening. Do you attribute a lot of your attitude towards the project you do to your hardcore punk rock past? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because I, the the DIY ethos was was probably the most important part of punk to me, uh, even more so than than the music and the and the scene and the camaraderie and whatever came out of it was an ethos that you can do this thing. Uh, yeah. You don't need a certificate. You don't need a piece of paper. Uh, you don't need to have something bestowed upon you to say now you may go forth and do. This, right. that it was always about people just doing the thing that they wanted to do. And amongst the people that I was friends with, most of these people did not come from wealth or privilege. So there was no real support system behind them. It was merely the desire to see this event take place or to go off on this tour or to produce this zine or something. Yeah. And I couldn't help but to take that forward into other projects because I always assumed that these things were done by other people and they lived on a, a separate plane than me. You know, a film exhibitor is someone who has gone to university and has a degree and can pronounce the names of the directors properly. Right. And in my case, I did not go to any university. I can't often pronounce the names properly, but I do have a knowledge and a desire. Can you, can you explain to me how what the steps were from going from uh, having an interest in film to writing that film to having a... Uh, a participating role in preserving a film or becoming part of the productions of things. What was the, the trajectory with that? Well, the, the first thing is is that I, I never have and I never will have a sense of career. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. Okay. Uh, but I think that the, the one thing I think which is important is that whether you're writing about film, whether you're programming film, whether you're presenting a film, whether you're restoring and releasing a film, whether you're making a documentary about a film, whether you're making a film, you know, mm-hmm. you are ultimately doing the same thing. And that is, uh, you know, kind of nailing the, your colours to the wall. And, and that is what cinema is, uh, what should be celebrated, what is important and what's not important. And I think that that, that is the consistent think uh, in the way that uh, I do feel that Jawowski's films should be seen. I do feel Hard to Be a God should be seen. I do feel that The Color of Pomegranates should be seen. Right. And, and I think not only should those films be seen, they should be appreciated in context. I do think it's worth going to Armenia as a, uh, for no other reason than trying to get a better purchase on The Color of Pomegranates. And, and, and that, that kind of... Um, uh, I've got. I've never been a film critic. 
Uh, I, I never put myself on a kind of a pedestal and to have the responsibility of kind of uh, judging on behalf of others. No, it, it's just a response, so a working out of uh, the problems posed by a film because all of these films are frustrating, annoying, enticing and troubling yeah and I think that the writing of the documentaries is a, is a, is a way of uh, addressing that I don't know if this is like too reductive to put it this way but I mean when you take a film like Colored Pomegranates or Hard to Be God or Possession and you start researching and putting together the documentaries or, or um, becoming a character in that film's post-theatrical history in a way. Is that part of just how you express your love of a film, is to become involved in clarifying it for others or just to clarify for yourself? Uh, only for myself, in the way that uh, I'm not... I, I'm being sincere when I say, if I, if I, when I restored the film, it's primarily for myself. Was there a social aspect to underground or cult film culture that was part of the attraction of it? I mean, did you... I get this is like a pre-internet age, so were you making yeah. connections with people that were the first people you met that were interested in the same kind of films? Was it like was that part of the draw, or was that just kind of a, a, a nice kind of you know, byproduct of that? I think it would be actually be generous to even describe it as a nice byproduct, because at that time, you know, pre-internet age... I shouldn't, perhaps I shouldn't be like so dismissive of it. I mean, certainly, you know, it was nice to um, get things in the mail and have nice handwritten letters. I feel like I'm 150 years old as I'm saying this, and we're talking about things that came over the teletype. <laughs> Back when Western Union was still delivering messages on, you know, horseback, um, you know, no, I mean, we would trade magazines and. You know, and you would get these nice handwritten letters. So, I mean, in retrospect, actually, I guess that was kind of a, you know, a, a, trying to think about it. I have looking at it with nostalgia now. I mean, that was a kinder period in some ways than, you know, uh, stuff we have now with how people interact online. Um, but no, the social part of it was, um, was very, very minimal, really. Hmm. You contrast it with, you know, the fact that you can be connected online and various social media platforms today with people that share the most obscure film interests as you. And back then, that was not really possible. So that was a secondary consideration. It was really exciting on some level to, like, find these people. And, you know, you would share handwritten letters, you know, that would have to go through the mail. And that's how we all communicated back then in the Pony Express days. And, uh... That was great, but it was still a secondary consideration. I mean, having said that, I think one of the defining aspects of our culture now is convenience and how much that's caused us to take everything for granted. Mm. You know, and I mean, in terms of the fact that everything is available to us now, you know, instantly. And I think it's true that that does tend to diminish the value of things. Do you miss having to really physically hunt for films? I'm embarrassed to admit that, yes, I do. <laughs> uh, and, and I wish that that was not the case, because I think it points to uh, a tendency where you might think that search for something is more valuable than what you actually wind up acquiring. We started out with Breathless. Okay. That was our first film, and all these other film people who ran other film societies that you know, who've been showing stuff for years and there were there are friends that is all friendly but they were so jealous all of a sudden they show breathless and we had lines out you know out the door one of my great thrills is i met anna karina this year yeah. she she was touring with band of outsiders she came to the united states and i got to meet her so i told her this this story i said you'll love this story john Luc Godard came to madison we went I don't remember what he was, why he was there. The, I only remember 
John Lagendard is coming here. This is for, for anybody who was political or had pretense of being political. John Lagendard was the filmmaker of the 1960s. This was, this was, you know, his first part of his name, God. This was Godard. And that was the reason he had a name. So there were about five of us in the student union, which is where everybody hung out and sat around the table with Jean Le Godard for an hour. Nobody said a word. <laughs> We were all intimidated. This is, I'm telling Anna Karina, who, who was his wife at, uh, in, the, in the 60s, sure. and, and the star, fabulous star of, of, of his movies, uh, the majority of his movies of that period. And um, so I told her this story. She said, that's so funny. She said, you know, he didn't say anything either, did he? Because he never talked. That's what, <laughs> that was what her line was. Yeah, I said, no, he never talked. But it was, it was just an opportunity lost by everybody. But he was so... Such a an intimidating figure. What was the first review that you wrote? I would say it was ninety six, and it was probably Fargo. You know, this was this was the, this was senior year of high school, and I vividly remember, you know, on my word processor, it was probably Word Perfect, uh-huh. deciding to articulate my thoughts about this movie that I'd just seen on the big screen and loved and wanted to write about what I think is special about the Coen brothers and, you know, just sort of jotted it all down. But I didn't know what I was going to do with it other than print it out of my dot matrix printer, show it to my parents and see what they thought, show it to friends and see if they even bothered to read it. It wasn't like, I wasn't thinking, how am I going to mass distribute this? Or how am I going to make a zine? Or how any of those things that I hear a lot of people do early on. It was more of just like, how do I get these thoughts and structure them so they make sense and that they're interesting to read? So that was that was definitely the first review I wrote. And then like a year later, I would wind up working in a video store for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And I became... You know, not necessarily addicted, but just I love the idea of writing reviews, typing them out, putting them on paper, and then making a lot of copies of them using the work printer and putting them on the on the on the table next to the register. And people would pick them up on their way out and take them with them. That was my first experience of like, they're reading my stuff at home, maybe. This is exciting. I wonder what they think. And of course, the regulars would come back and be like, hey, I read your review of this movie, and now I want to check it out. And that was like, ooh, now I see the power of film criticism. I had got really disillusioned with the online writing, and I just couldn't. It it was partially kind of writer's block and then just not wanting to do it anymore and just being very distrustful of it. And, um, so it was a combination of that, uh, turning 40, which I, I never thought would have any kind of impact on me, but it really did. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then Lou Reed dying, um, it, it, that all kind of coincided together. And, uh, when, when Lou died, I, I, you know, I just, I just realized, you know, I'm in my early forties. I've just lost kind of the, the great influence of my life. I've not done anything that I, feel like that I can be remembered for or would look back on, you know, fondly. And I just thought, you know, now's the time to do something. So, you know, I sat down with my wife and I just said, you know, my early idea was just to have it be kind of um, invite some of the writers because I I got to know all of these amazing writers from all over the world. And I thought, well, this is how I can I can start this magazine because I've managed to meet all these amazing people online. And uh, so I sat down with my wife and I kind of told her what my idea was and at the time, it was just going to be written pieces, just to gather together written pieces, 
kind of print it and put it out. And she said, well, you know, that sounds cool and everything, but that sounds really boring. She's like, no, I mean, don't you want it to be something special, something colorful? And that's where she kind of came in as like the, the co-creator of it. Um, cause it was her idea to make it in color, to start incorporating her own photo shoots and to make it in, into something, you know, really quite different than anything else out there. Um, so the, the main motivations behind starting it were you know, to gather together, you know, people that I admired and knew and, and really respected and invite them in to write about whatever they wanted to. There would be no limitations that could be as out there, you know, as they wanted. Uh, and I'm so glad that some of them like Heather Drain have taken advantage of that. And then it would be, um, also I wanted it to be an extremely feminist publication because mm-hmm. I was really disillusioned with a lot of younger people who had, made the word feminist and feminism into something bad, which I thought was insane. I mean, coming of age in the seventies and eighties, so many of my heroes were from the feminist movement. So I, I was just so thrown off when that word start, kind of started to become a dirty word. So I wanted it to be a very, very feminist, very uh, woman centric publication, meaning that a lot of the writers would be women. A lot of the contributors would be women because one problem that I've always had with kind of genre magazines and, um, film and music related magazines and and publications specifically is that it's pretty male dominated. Um, and there can, there are so many strong female writers out there, but for some reason they just weren't being as represented as I thought they should. So it was really important to me that the first batch of people that I invited almost exclusively were all women that I had admired their writing, uh, Marceline block, Tara Hanks, Heather drain, you know, and, and so those notions and then the notion that I, I didn't want it to be, a, a review based publication. I didn't want it to, and those are great. I mean, there's some, there's so many great ones out there like video watchdog is the ultimate great example, but I just wanted it to be kind of this schizophrenic reflection of both mine and my wife, Kelly's tastes that are so all over the place and just to have it be where literally you wouldn't know what you were going to get when you turn the page. How has the reception of the book changed your life? I mean, we kind of touched on this a little bit, and you're telling me that it doesn't really seem to make a tremendous amount of impact on how you operate as a festival programmer. But, um, I mean, do you get a lot more strangers contacting you thinking they know you as a person because of reading that book? I mean, is it, does, it, does it afford you more professional opportunities in terms of like writing liner notes or getting invited to participate in DVD extras? I mean, was it... Has it been a tangible thing for you? I mean, as far as... I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of times when people ask me to write liner notes or DVD extras or anything like that, they haven't read the book. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of them, I've been referred to them by somebody who's read the book. But I get the sense a lot of times that the people themselves commissioning me have not read the book. Because a big part of this is because they'll commission me to write things and then they don't like it, you know? And so I'm sort of like, are you actually familiar with my writing? Like, have you actually read anything I've written? And, you know, a lot of them haven't. So the book, if anything, it's, you know, it's out there that I'm supposedly an expert on something. And so I guess people I don't know could contact me and ask me to do stuff because of that. But yeah, I mean, as far as the first part of what you were saying, where people like, do they contact me thinking like, feeling like they know me or whatever? I don't know that people feel like they know me, but I, but, but they feel like they have a connection with with me just from shared experiences, you know. So it's not necessarily they feel like they know me or they're my friend or they're like a crazy person and we're BFFs forever or something, you know. But it's like that they they feel like I 
can relate to this person. We had a lot of similar experiences, you know, and sometimes they'll tell me about those experiences and stuff. And so it's really, it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I was watching Little Darlings yesterday for the first time in maybe like 15 or 20 years. And I remember you writing about Christy McNichol in the book and how you used to write personal kind of very, very personal fan mail to people like Christy McNichol thinking, you know, they could be my friend if they just knew me. Like, and, yes. and uh, so I, I was that person. Yeah. yeah. And so I just, you know, and I, it also makes me think of Durfan and like, um, so I just was, you know, I could, I could imagine a certain kind of reader potentially like developing that relationship with you through reading the book. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure if that ever happened to you. No, no. And I mean, and honestly, my letters to a lot of those people when I was a kid were not that personal. It was more like, you know, I want to, you know, come to my birthday party. <laughs> We're going to have cake. You, know. you worked at Criterion, and then I know that you still do work for them, kind of, I guess, more in a freelance capacity now. I mean, it's much later, but you brought them house and house. I mean, you're, I mean, probably responsible for it, having the North American cult following that it has. Yeah, I mean, house was, house was one of those ones where Jonathan said we're licensing stuff from Toho. Right. And I said, you should get Coroneco because it's a great horror movie. And House. It's House. So I had the, I had bought long ago, because I'd read about it first, I think, in probably the, the Encyclopedia of Horror Films. Patrick Macias had a little thing on it in his book, uh, Tokyo Scope. And then I, I bought blind, uh, probably through mail order, a Japanese DVD of it. Watched it without subtitles. Was like this is amazing. Showed it to people, and then when they re-upped the toll, I said, "You should get it. It's it's this bizarre horror movie." And I, at that point, I didn't really really know anything about Obayashi's career, although there were some interviews with him on the disc. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously unsubtitled. And at that time, I didn't really speak Japanese. To their credit, they grabbed it. They just liked, they added it, just like sight unseen. But then they sat on it for years and didn't <laughs> didn't know what to do with it. Like, what is it? I don't think anybody even really watched it. Go forward maybe a couple of years. I was co-director of the New York Asian Film Festival, and we were at the IFC Center. The IFC had its own midnight program, so they're like, "We've got slots. You've got a projectionist. Let's do it." Fridays, Saturdays, we did midnight. So we said, we, "Let's do house," because by that time. Criterion had put it on the IFC channel, I think. Okay. So it was on, and people it, it played a couple times, and it hadn't made much impact. So we knew I, I knew they had a subtitled master. So okay. I said, let's just screen that, and we did. And uh, we had that year it would have been two thousand nine, I guess. Okay. We had Yoshihiro Nishimura and Noboru Gucci in town, so they came, and they both loved it, especially Gucci. So we had them intro house. Okay. Do like a talk about it. And then it sold out. I think because it had a tiny bit of notoriety from the cable broadcast, then we added another screening because it sold out. And we added another. I think we did three screenings over the festival that all sold out at midnight. People would come. We'd see the same people were coming to see it over and over. Yeah. So then it became this staple of IFC showed it literally weekly for years, over and over and over and over again. And it, other places would pick it up. So Janice decided, let's do, we have this, I think they made an HD cam. They decided to roll it out as a, a title available for theatrical screenings. And lots of places did the same things. And a family did it. And um, they did a 35 print. And they did another 35 print. And I think they did another 35 print because they needed yeah. it for the multiple bookings. They did the t-shirt. They did the poster. Uh, all that stuff long before there was a disc. So eventually my a friend in Japan he said, well, let me introduce you to Chigumi. I know her, the daughter of the director, the woman who came up with the story when she was a kid. Met them, became friendly with the family. They're 
really wonderful people. And, you know, oh, thank you for bringing this. You know, they recommended it to them, and we showed it at the fest, and I'm glad it's coming out. And he said, I had no idea this movie from so long ago has this new life overseas. Because none of his films had ever really got much of a distribution overseas. Yeah. And he's made many, many, you know, over 40 films. Then at some point after that, maybe a year later, Criterion finally decided we're going to do a disc, you know, using that key art that uh, Sam Smith, who uh, is the drummer with Ben Folds 5, yeah. also an artist, he did the poster and then did the cover. And uh, I went to Tokyo again and did shot interviews with the two of them and with um, Chio Katsura, who was uh, the writer of House. Then the disc comes out and it just, yeah, it just turns into this, like it's screening all over the place. And they start doing retrospectives. The Sinner family did a retrospective of his stuff. He came to New York several times for shows. Uh, Obayashi did. I know he came for a MoMA thing and then he did a retro at Japan Society just devoted to him. And yeah. we did a, anthology thing. I think he did it at Philomoka with my uh, past guest Eric Bressler. Right, we did. That was just because he was in New York and we, um, I, did, I knew Eric loved the film and loved Japanese in general. I said, you know, Obayashi's going to be here, why don't we, I, I drove them down. Yeah. Just drove them down to, to Philly and toured them through the Reading Terminal Market all day and then it was, I remember it was raining really badly. We had plans to go outside somewhere. They just stayed in the market because they love food and they shopped and then we went over and did the screening at Philomoka. They loved it. They were really happy. He loves meeting young people who love his films. The like the overseas audiences are so much more enthusiastic, I think, than Japanese audiences. It must be very gratifying to know that you were so instrumental in helping that film. Like it's it's so popular now. I mean, I, I, people it's are crazy how much of a cult thing it is. Yeah. And for a while, there was like all these pop culture references that would show up in the background of like talk shows or the posters, something like that. There were some weird, you know, sort of more pop culture zeitgeist references to it. And I, I would send them to them all the time and say, "Look, it's it's shown up here." No, I mean, I'm just gratified that it's it's found an audience. Identity politics originally the idea behind that was that you know we're all on the same side but you need to understand like where I'm coming from and like you can broaden your understanding of my position and we can come together and now identity politics is used as this wedge and it's just divide and it's just like well you can't you know you can't write about that because you're not a black woman like you can't this person can't touch this subject and I'm like that's fucked up like that sucks like I agree that there should be more diversity in film. I and but but I want that because I believe that will make films better. Right. Like that's the that's the, for me that's sort of the fundamental principle. So when you have somebody like Nate Parker, whose film was literally everyone I know who's seen it who has seen it says it sucks, says it's terrible. Yeah. Um. Who's seemingly he checks all these boxes and then it's like well oh but also he's a terrible person and he's handling this situation very badly and it's like and then it, like the film gets lost you know and it's either like oh he is going to get punished for something or he's not going to or he is going to get the oscar and he's not going to be and it's like right. what the fuck is this this is a disgusting conversation i hate this you yeah. know yeah with that film in particular it's like everything about it seems to be about anything other than the film itself yeah and I was wondering like is the critical consensus going to be negative and will that even matter if people have their mind made up based on the idea of what it is <sighs> yeah I mean that's I mean I feel like the stu- when the studio bought it that's maybe what they, maybe that's where they were yeah. I don't feel comfortable because again it's like that was like literally off the coattails of um, Oscar the, So White Oscar So White and it's like again that is a to- that's a totally valid criticism. That is a totally valid thing to be upset about and expect po- like positive change. But is it like I don't think that you know throwing money at something like this is the solution either. I I'm, I'm comfortable write about writing about horror movies. I I you know it's not my full time job. I mean it is 
it's the whole thing for me i have a full-time job so this is is um it's not i wouldn't say it's a hobby but something that i kind of enjoy doing and it's something that i i kind of stimulates me um it also helps me relax and all these different types of things and it's, it's a creative process without becoming sounding too um pretentious but it's a creative process that i actually uh, you know i um i i get joy from and that's something so in some ways part of me I've always had a slight fear of turning what I get joy from as like a, for one of better term, more than a hobby, but turning it into a job because I, you know, that's, that, that's always, that's always been a bit of a concern to me. I didn't necessarily. Well, that actually does tie into a question I had for you because I guess when, when you, maybe when you started, uh, Hysteria Lives, um, hmm. you had mentioned in the description that you were a web designer and also doing hmm. work as a vegetarian wholesale distributor, maybe. Uh, yeah. so, hmm. But, um, maybe I'm incorrect in this, but it seemed like hmm. for someone like you compared to a lot of other writers that I've talked to or, or people involved in film criticism, you feel to me like a, like a self-contained entity more than someone that is pitching stories for other publications. It seems like you mm. um, you write for your own site, you do your own podcast, and you participate as a, a, a commentator in documentaries or do commentaries or such. But for the most part, you, you don't seem like th- this does not seem like something that you are climbing your way to the top. You're, it's It almost seems like you're doing it more out of joy independently of that entire process is that is that accurate i, I think that i think that's accurate yes i mean it's i i found i discovered early on i mean because i'd, I'd written the book teenage wasteland and um, it was released a slashing movie book in the, in the united states mm-hmm. and i kind of fell into that because i always wanted i always thought it'd be really interesting i'd love to do a book but a friend of a friend of mine was a commissioning editor at a at a you know a publishers and she said, well, would you be interested in doing a book? And I thought, okay, that sounds great. I naively thought that um, people who wrote books made money. So <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking, oh, how am I going to put all this money aside to pay off tax and things like that? Um, and then I found out relatively quickly that you don't make money writing these books. So it's, a, I, I, it's not, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. I, it's not, um, it's not, this isn't coming from a place of bitterness at all, but it was, it was, it was interesting to me because, I, um, I, you know, it was, I was published, it, the book was um, published and republished twice on both sides of the Atlantic, but I still hadn't paid off the uh, relatively small advance. Now, it wasn't never really about the money for me because it was more about getting the book out there. And it was kind of like, that was almost a cathartic experience in some ways. Um, and I was interested to see once I'd done it and got it out there, um, how that would be for me, would I have lost interest in, in the genre? And I haven't, but I also didn't realize how difficult it was to write a book, um, on something like that because the pressures where I was told to write so many thousand words. And then I, then we decided to make it more of a picture led book and cut these things out. I had somebody sub editing who didn't know anything about these movies. So they would remove huge swathes of the, of the writing. And I would say, we have to at least mention the child's play movies. Otherwise I'm going to look stupid. So, so there was a lot of strange things going on with that. And I, so once I did that and I started to think, um, I, I, I started doing some writing for other magazines and doing bits and pieces and then it started, to, I could feel myself feeling like it's becoming a chore and it was, it was using up all my spare time. And I thought, no, I just want to step back because I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it for the glory. I don't really, I have no particular ego with this. I was in, in it because I have, you know, a passionate fan. And when, and I see people sometimes being dismissive about fan writers, people who are fans who write. And of course there are some good write, fan writers and some bad fan writers, but uh, I, I've kind of purposely stayed away. I kind of guess from that whole, that whole thing. 
I never, I, I wasn't under, apart from briefly when I thought I was going to become this publishing millionaire, you know, I mean, I never really thought that, but I thought, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be making a living at this. And also I was concerned about it becoming a chore and I didn't want it to become a chore. So I've, I've been, I've kind of picked and uh, I've, I picked my kind of projects quite carefully mm-hmm. um, um, because uh, I was worried for, for those reasons, really. I didn't, I never really wanted to, to, to think that this was all a chore and it was, um, and then um, become uh, disillusioned, basically. As someone that had interest in making narrative fiction feature films, do you sometimes resist temptation for maybe throwing in some directorial flourishes or style that might get in the way of conveying the information. Is it, a, is it, is it ever tricky in terms of like not wanting to simply have like a collection of talking heads versus like something that like the style could be intrusive, like finding the right balance. Is that ever tricky? Yeah. It, and it is, um, you know, regardless of what I'm documenting in the end, I'm taking the story or the narrative associated with some, piece of history, some film, television show, whatever, I'm taking it and I'm making it my own. I mean, that's what you do as a filmmaker. I mean, you you see it a certain way and you put it out there the way that you see it and you hope that an audience finds it, enjoys it, and appreciates what you did. So that labor, uh, that work, uh, doesn't, you know, fall on deaf ears and people just dismiss whatever it is you're wanting it you want people to like you want people to like the documentary but more importantly you want them to learn and appreciate what you're documenting there is a balance that you have to find because it's your documentary but it's not your story and you have a responsibility to the story the lives of the people that are associated with the story and you want to make sure that that they are respected and you want to make sure that um their labor is reflected in what you convey to the audience. I know that you have strong opinions on things like Women in Horror Month, and I wonder if you could talk to me about your thoughts on that, because I know that you have strong ones. I have very strong ones, and it's something that really frustrates me because I think I tend to have maybe a skewed perspective on it, but I, I get why you would want to celebrate female filmmakers and writers, because there's definitely an industry... I mean, you can't even say there's an industry bias towards men. There's just a global bias. and Or we could call it a historical bias. But I think that sometimes what happens is when people say, okay, we're going to celebrate only female filmmakers... It tends to be alienating very quickly because I think there's a tendency with something like Women in Horror Month for it to go out of control really quickly, become really clicky, which it has, and to not encourage a lot of rational debate. I mean, I've definitely gotten into arguments with people who, if I said I didn't like someone's work, it turned into, you hate women because you don't like this person's films and they're a woman. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's fucking ridiculous. You obviously don't know what you're talking about and you don't feel comfortable debating the merits of a movie. Like, I don't think the gender of the director should have anything to do with it. Do you feel like they push for the the criticism to be gender-focused, like for the subject matter yes, to be... and um, they're very hostile if... I would say I've encountered a lot of hostility 
if it's anything other than jumping on the bandwagon and being supportive. And I'm not, I'm just not really interested in that. Like I want to support someone's films if they make films I like. Do you, I don't want to support their films just because we happen to be the same gender. Have you ever run into sexism from readers in any comments? Oh, yes. So what I was saying earlier about how I feel like my perspective is skewed is I was raised by predominantly men. I have 8 million uncles. They are all into, for the most part, sci-fi and horror. So I grew up with mostly male friends, mostly male family members, all very supportive. And I never really... I mean, there are definitely some exceptions, but for the most part, within music and film-related subcultures, I've always felt really welcomed. And I think part of that is that I tend to have a very aggressive personality, so I'm not really a target for guys who are looking for someone to bully or looking for someone to inappropriately hit on. Like, I'm just not that girl. Right, because you'll, you'll hand them their ass? Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't... I, I never grew up in a way where I felt like I couldn't say what I, what was on my mind. Right. So I tend to not... Like, Daughters of Darkness is really the first time that I'm even posting a picture of myself or making reference to the fact that I'm female. I mean, through all the blogs and websites that I've had and my zines, my name is gender neutral. So people automatically assume that because I'm writing about cult films... And I have that name that I'm male. Well, you also, when I met you, I think Captain Kirk was your profile picture. For years. Yeah. So I don't think I knew you were female until I met you in person when you were introducing the uh, Eurocult documentary, I think was when I met you. Yes. And that's happened to me a lot where I've met people and they're so surprised that I'm female. Like it never even occurred to them that I would be. And that's fine. I it doesn't need to occur to you that I'm female. Like, right. Just read my blog and comment if you agree or disagree. And, and it's more about that for me. Like, it's not that I feel like I need to hide my gender, but I don't think it has anything to do with my blog. So when my blog was still called Axe Wound, I got a number of angry comments from Women in Horror Month related people who thought I was male and were very aggressive and getting all their friends to comment about how much of a misogynist I am. And I'm a guy, so I can't possibly understand. It's like, you bitches. (laughs) I am not male. Sometimes I wish I was. Because then I could be admitted... If I had a time machine and I was male, then I could be admitted into the super weird leather clubs of the 50s and 60s. <laughs> That's really the only reason I would like to be it's male. the best reason to want to be a man. I know. <laughs> I try to be... Um, I always take it case by case, you know? I mean, I always try to do, you know, certainly research and you know, put the same amount of hard work into anything I do. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, I mean, some pieces are going to be better than others. That's, I mean, you do anything long enough, there's going to be some that you can look back on and be like, oh, I I did exactly what I wanted to do with that. And there are others where you're like, (laughs) oh, that's my little deformed baby I'm going to put in the attic and not talk about to the neighbors with, you know, but, uh, but, you know, you still love it. It's still your kid, you know. Since we were talking about porn. Naturally. Naturally. And we talked about Danny Peary earlier. I I wanted to ask you this. So when I was first getting into Danny Peary's writing, I think uh, Guide for the Film Fanatic, his uh, book of mini reviews, 
the, one of the things I found interesting about it as a teenager was that it had a, a pretty high number of X-rated titles kind of mixed in with classics and foreign films and horror films and so forth. Uh, they were they were not discriminated against in terms of, you know, an overview of the form. And uh, he's coming from that kind of golden age of porn kind of uh, generation, so that I think by the time that those books were coming, I mean, it wasn't quite like where it where it would go as far as like you know the uh, the, the Gonzo shot on video thing. I mean, he's still he's still referencing films that are you know, shot on film, have stories, have have you know visions. When uh, when I first started listening to you on Projection Booth, it, it felt like that was maybe some of the first that and Rialto Report were like some of the first shows I heard where adult films were being taken seriously as cinema in, since I read Perry. Um, do you, I guess, I guess because you get brought on at least in the early episodes as someone, you know, who has kind of an expert kind of take on, you know, you, you have like a, this encyclopedic knowledge of performers and you have this whole, you, you have, you have a good grasp on the genre as, as a, as a cinematic genre, not just as, you know, pornography i guess for for cinephiles that don't have an appreciation or much exposure to classic adult cinema um i wanted to ask you what makes the genre interesting for you well i think what makes it interesting for me um isn't even necessarily the genre itself i think in a way yes actually i'll take part of that back because as a genre it's always been the least respected out of all the film genres, it's always been the one just as soon as you mention it, people scoff and, you know, it has a seediness about it, um, which can also be sort of intriguing, you know, like a mystery, like, ooh, you know, and then, you know, what's, what's this forbidden thing? What is this? And, um, but also, um, for me, I'm always just attracted to, to films. I'm a film girl. Like, I, I wouldn't really consider myself a, a firm 100% expert on any one genre. I mean, I have strengths in some than others, certainly. And um, and I know more probably maybe than the average bear, if that's okay to say. But there are people that know way more than I do that are, that are more experts. What I do is I, I look for what I'm drawn to as a film. And that could be it could be like Alex Dorenzi's Pretty Peaches, or it could be, uh, you know, The Incident. It could be, you know, uh, the 1920s version of Faust. I mean, I just kind of go wherever my interests and passions take me. Um, but with the early, certainly with the early classic era of adults, you know, I do find that history obviously very, very fascinating and, and very just, uh, I guess if, if I've been drawn to it, it's because it's so, until recently, but even now, I mean, there's still plenty of people where if you mention adult films, you know, they're thinking, they're either thinking something horrible like Anal Angels 9 or something, <laughs> or something you know, like something really outre and just pretty obvious. Or they just think of your typical, like, stereotype of, like, oh, it's the pizza delivery boy. And and the thing is, like, the films that I've been lucky enough to write about and certainly talk about do not, none of them fit that. These are, you know, I don't, I don't bother with the chaff. You know, if I'm writing about something, unless I'm, unless it's a paid gig and I'm getting paid to review something, <laughs> then I'm still objective with it, of course. But I mean, you know, I don't, I cover what I'm interested in and... You know, I I don't I don't really believe in writing or doing anything if your if your heart's not in it. You, you know, for the writing to be good, you have to have a pulse with it. You have to have a heartbeat with it. And because if you're faking it and you're going through the motions with it, your reader will know. The readers know. People aren't stupid, so don't play them for fools. You know, and, um that's a really long, probably 
potentially pretentious answer to your question, <laughs> Phil. I'm so sorry. Well, no, I mean, we're, when we're talking about porn, we need to be, you know, area about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so my pinky is totally out. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, how much time do you devote to the research and interviews per episode on average? Because the research part of Projection Booth, I think, is maybe the most impressive aspect of it. Because I listen to a lot of film podcasts, and I feel like Wikipedia and IMDb are the extent of a lot of the research a lot of them do. And it's really astonishing. Like, were you always a research junkie before you had the Projection Booth to kind of put it into into shape like that? Um... Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm looking at my, my bookshelf right now, uh, which are, you know, kind of bowing from the weight of the books on certain shelves. And yeah, I've always been a fan of looking things up and tracking down information. Um, I loved, um, when I was in college, the course packs that they would give you. I don't know if you're familiar with. Sure, yeah. I was an yeah. English major. I had them too. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. And this was before the copyright breakdown. So you could read whatever you wanted and all of these articles would come in this thing and it would cost you what, 25 bucks. So you're basically paying for the photocopying, right? Right. I almost said Xeroxing. I know that's a <laughs> tr- copywritten term. So, you know, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So I love that kind of stuff. And basically when it comes to a lot of these episodes, I try to make those course packs and I, you know, make myself sit down with those. And especially when I come home from my day job, I'll sit out in the backyard, you know, have a nice, uh, uh, you know, brown pop as we call them every once in a while mm-hmm. and just enjoy reading these articles. But I'm never not reading something that's related to the show. You uh, you talk about reading the screenplays for a lot of films that you cover on. Was that was that? I know that you talk about Reservoir Dogs being an early case where you tracked down the screenplay. And mm-hmm. was that something that you then kind of carried on going forward after reading the Reservoir Dogs uh, in the years between that and doing Projection Booth? Were you always hunting down the screenplays for films that you liked? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There, I mean, I remember reading the screenplay for Pulp Fiction probably around. Uh, April of 94, right around the time it won the Palme d'Or. Mm-hmm. And then when it came out, basically I was like, well, I've already seen this movie in my head. Like Tarantino is that great of a writer that you catch every detail from his writing. And he's, it's just amazing to read his screenplays because you can really see the film in your head. And to me, he's one of the greats when it comes to that. Um, you know, and he doesn't write close up this, the way that he will tell a story with his words and he'll draw your attention to the watch that's in Christopher Walken's hand, these kind of things. So you just can see everything beforehand. But, but yeah, ever since then, I have definitely been a, a fan of scripts. My friend Mike Thompson usually hooks me up with a lot of them or would before the internet age. Uh, there was also a uh, place called Picks poster seller from I think they were in Boston maybe, and they did a mail order uh, screenplay thing that again got to be a little cost prohibitive, especially be the shipping and everything. So, right. but um, 
there were a lot of things that I ordered from them over the years. And then once um, my friend Rich Osmond, uh, not only was he a zinester, but he also writes a lot of screenplays. Mike Thompson writes a lot of screenplays. So then I kind of got in on it with those guys when it came to, like, let's all order together and let's pass these things around to one another. So that really kind of helped out as well. So, yeah, I've been a big fan of reading the script. Like, when it came to... Uh, writing about Alien 3 uh, back in the, must have been the mid, no, late 90s, that was me tracking down as many of those scripts as I possibly could. And that was so fascinating to, to me to see the evolution of a project like that, that that's one of the things that I love when it comes to doing this stuff for the projection booth is how does how do things change from the writer to what we see on screen. So once that goes into motion, because I haven't spoken to that many people, I don't think I've spoken to anybody that's appeared on camera for a Criterion release, although I've spoken to a few people that have done on-camera interviews. Did they send a crew to you to film you, or did you have to go to New York? How did the, the featurette that you participate in come together? There's a gentleman, gentleman named Curtis who was the project coordinator for Valerie. Yeah. Uh, you've probably heard of him yeah. then, yeah. And we, we had these exchanges uh, about what, what exactly they would want to do. And actually, right before that, there was a weird thing where there was a, there was a television program. I don't know if you know this. A, a program, like a, a dancing program on TV that was on a, a station that was one of these shows that like zillions of people watch where people do elaborate dance programs and it's on prime time and people vote for the best dance routine. Dancing with the Stars? It's, I don't think it was that one. It was another one. But okay. But it was one of those kind of shows used a piece of the Valerie Project music on there for the choreography. So there's a weird clip. You can see this on YouTube where these dancers are performing to a piece of Valerie Project music and there's a huge studio audience and people are just, it's really weird. That is weird. And that was the first time they actually made any money. I think that paid back the cost of recording the thing all these years later because they got a residual from this piece of music being used because the choreographer for the dancers was a fan of the music. I don't know if she saw it at MoMA or just had heard it at some point. But in any case, Curtis had contacted me and we had this back and forth and, and what it came down to was that they were going to send, they had a Philly based crew. I think they have crews of people in, in different cities who do the, the shooting and the, and the um, sound recording for the uh, supplemental interviews. And that he would come down from New York to ask me the actual questions because he was the project coordinator. Um, and he was going to do Greg Weeks and me on the same day in the same location. We shot at the international house. Uh, they let us use the space there, okay. uh, which was a, day with a nasty snowstorm and it was it was pretty it's snowing in his uh, oh you can see this yeah yeah the snow yeah it was it was kind of a bitch to get in to do the thing and i was afraid it wasn't going to happen i wasn't sure if they were added for like effect but i'm like there's no snow in valerie i don't know i mean it's not like marquetta you know like (laughs) no no it was it it was the window um and he uh he had he sent me the questions in advance that he was he was thinking of asking and um so that I have some idea how to respond to the questions and then I wrote back and said well these questions are are I I wouldn't be qualified to answer because I think that they're very specific for the musicians to answer and you should probably just ask them to Greg because you're not going to get a satisfactory answer from me and then just, and then when we went in I kind of knew what I was going to be asked um and it's a very edited piece right. uh so i probably sound far far more eloquent and you know than than i may be in real life it'll be like this podcast thanks if i sound good on the podcast it's thanks to bill <laughs> uh but in any case yeah that was the way way that it worked and the the one thing that i wanted to try to do was there was my little easter egg to to my mother and my brother was that shortly before the interview my father had died uh, and he had gone through a, a long period of dying of cancer, and it was it was pretty horrible. Uh, and we had, had I had a little 
pin that I bought for my mother and my brother and Hannah uh, that was supposed to be a sort of a remembrance pin for him and that we would wear it and sort of think of him in, in some way with this yeah. pin. So I wanted to have that on uh, my blazer so that it would be seen. And I didn't want to tell my mother in advance, but I wanted to eventually show her the clip and say, oh, look, your son was on this yeah. this disc. And you see, it's the pin, you know, you know who I was thinking about when I was doing that. And it's yeah. there, but it's it's shot a little dark, so you can't really see the pin. But yeah. you could see it well enough to know that, like, JJG was there, you know, like, in my head, in my heart when I did the thing. That's, that's an, I'm going to have to look for that pin now and rewatch it. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a very sweet, that's a very sweet gesture. I, did your mom, I guess, was she moved by that when she well, Yeah, because they, they had gone to that screening and, um, he, he was very instrumental in, in me developing my love of these films. And he, he was someone who had, um, uh, he was a Vietnam combat veteran. He, uh, saw a tremendous amount of, death and contributed to a tremendous amount of death and, and had worked a really difficult job through his life. He was a laborer, uh, heavy, heavy, uh, construction laborer, jackhammers and things like road construction and stuff like that. Right. Uh, so his job was, was very physically punishing on him, uh, but still managed to take me to see these films all the time when I was a kid. And every, everything that came out, I had to see. So I was always begging him, Oh, you have to take me to see this stuff. And, and he, fortunately he did. Yeah. Um, and he, he was always connected to the military. Uh, he always had a great, great love of the military and especially the, the French paratroopers because he, when he was in Vietnam, he had interacted and become friends with some French paratroopers who had been in Dien Bien Phu prior in the China war when France was in Vietnam and then some uh, French soldiers who had been in Algeria. So what he wound up doing later was he, he was a collector of French military insignia, uh, paratrooper type insignia. And he wound up, he would design some insignia that he would send the designs off to Pakistan and the Pakistanis would make him these insignias. They would, they would hand stitch these patches that he would sell to this collector market. Mm -hmm. And then I would be sent as a little kid to the post office to mail these packages all around the world. So from this very young age, I saw that he was doing this physical work during the day, but then he was doing this, this more creative thing that was his own project that involved international shipping that I was doing for him. And it really set the template for what I wound up doing later, which would be Diabolic DVD, where I'm shipping all these things all over the world. And, uh, and to me, that was just sort of a continuation of sort of what I did with him. And since he had given me this love of the fantastic films, that was the direction I went in rather than, you know, his, him working with the military stuff. In terms of like work-life balance, mm -hmm. you are somebody that all of your money comes in from creative endeavors. Do you ever get concerned about not being able to put aside money? Because uh, I, I talk to some people yeah. that, that live very paycheck to paycheck in it, and I know some people that treat their film culture projects as kind of like their side gig, and then they have the nine-to-five type job, whatever that sure. may be. Um, yeah, I mean, in theory, Philomoka should be a side gig, but I've made it my full-time job. Um, the money intake is equivalent of a full-time job, certainly. Yeah. But um, And I certainly should be saving money because I would love to have children someday. But I have this impulse that I just can't um, you know, refuse, and that is to take the money we make from Philomoka and put it into bigger events or put it into flying someone in that nobody cares about that I want to meet. <laughs> so, like... 
So, you know, like, say we have a really good weekend and we make, like, $2,000. Yeah. Instead of putting that in the bank, I put it towards bringing, a, you know, an actor from Degrassi down from Canada and doing yeah. an event surrounding it that will by no means break even. Um, but that's just, I don't know, it's an impulse and it's it's how I've managed things for years now. Yeah, it's funny. It's fascinating to me just as a film person to watch how you program things, especially when it comes down to the events that you do during the Philadelphia Film Festival where you really are reflecting, like, like Trent Harris, bring Trent Harris in, or yeah. like Frank Henelot, or bring Frank Henelot in. Like, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like what I always, like, as a teenager, wished film culture really was like. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's... It could sound corny, but it's like a you know it's a dream come true being able to do this. In terms of the kind of times we live in now, where I feel like a kind of show like Black on Black Cinema, you can you can react to socio political events in a really timely way. Films, you know, by their nature, take a long time to to write, produce, you know, edit. Do you do you feel like films today are capturing kind of what the times are like now, as far as? their cultural relevance do you feel like these last few years are being represented in the films you see or do you feel like other forms of media are kind of more culturally relevant in in that respect um i that's a that's a, actually a very good question so i i think i think that it's a yes and no kind of thing and this i'll start this off with sort of a slightly silly response and we'll get to we'll get to the meat of it which mm-hmm. is so I read this interesting book uh, called Hollywood 9-11, which if you haven't read it, it it's, a, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating little book. It's a short read. But it basically starts out by saying that after 9-11, the, the movies that became popular were sort of like superhero films. And mm-hmm. that's why they've taken off so much because we as a country and as a world sort of need heroes like these above the regular guy heroes, which I think is kind of a fascinating viewpoint. And I I actually 100% agree with that. And so, you know, even though they seem silly on their face, you know, Captain America and Iron Man and all this other stuff, and Batman and all this other stuff, I think those are culturally relevant in in our sort of like weird uh, fears about, you know, not only, not only politically, but like sociopolitically too. So like, I think those truly matter. But at the same time, you know, you know, obviously we do the show Black and Black Cinema, and there's a big, obviously, the crux of the show is black films. So, to me, things like uh, Fruitvale Station, mm-hmm. incredibly relevant to me. Uh, I think that you are seeing things that are addressed. You know, obviously, there is, I at least it feels to me that we're at sort of a tipping point with LGBT issues. We're at a tipping point with uh, the race to equality for women you know, so you, you're starting to see more, more, th- more of these even pop culture kind of silly movies addressing those, which I appreciate because I think much like something like a like a Daily Show or you know um, or any of those type of satirical shows, the message is sometimes better pushed into society via lightness. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a lot different to put. Trying to think of the best way. Like, while I enjoyed Fruitvale Station, I think it's a tremendous movie. Um, sadly, a lot of people didn't see it. Yeah, yeah I loved it. Yeah, and it's just brutal. It's a brutal film. Like, I mean, brutal as in you know what's coming, and it's just like it's just hard to watch. But as much as that film hits home and says like, "Hey, 
the you know police brutality or police shootings of un- of unarmed innocent black men is a real problem in this country and that message resonates with me it resonates with a few people who saw the film right um, and it certainly resonates with black americans but at the same time i saw a quote from the guy who is directing the luke cage um tv show for marvel on Netflix. And he, he was at San Diego Comic-Con this weekend and he had a great quote which said, you know, in these times, it's about time we had a black man who's bulletproof. Which if you don't know that character, he, you know, he has unbreakable skin. But like mm-hmm. that line to me, like obviously he knows what he means by that, which is obviously black people being shot by the police and things like that. But in that way, you can push that message and get people to understand that significance through something as silly as a superhero. And to me, those are the kind of moments where I go, that's right. Like directors and writers who are doing things like that, who are sort of um, using these seemingly innocent or seemingly childlike characters as sort of subversion into, you know, into getting their message through. That's wonderful. And I think that's what movies are. They're supposed to be, you know, movies and television are supposed to be. Well, I was thinking um, the idea of filmmakers that are just drawing from other films and when I think about just the technology required to make a film becoming more and more accessible and the, the means of distribution, like you could, we could make a film right now in this room and then upload it to YouTube. And if it was touched by some kind of rare genius, it could be, it could be influential on other people doing the same thing. I sometimes wonder why there wasn't a new wave via YouTube. Like it doesn't make any sense to me that there isn't, people that don't have the film school and the film, the same references, like why couldn't, why couldn't anyone that has that mindset be making the films now and finding the audience? I feel like word of mouth could, could allow it to bypass all the conventional channels in terms of where the medium is going. I know that things like virtual reality and there's other, there's other things that are talked about as far as what, where the form is going to go. Do you have any, um, do you have any strong feelings or, or, uh, Maybe best guesses as to where you see film going in the next few decades. Um, the technology will obviously go up, but, but probably increasingly stupid. <laughs> 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 no, I mean I, I don't mean that in a bad-tempered way, but it, right. it does. I think that the, the well, the, I am bad-tempered, but, but the you talk about a new wave, and I think one one important thing which is often neglected is that there is usually an institution at the heart of a new wave in the case of the French new wave it's Cahiers de Cinema, in the case of the Czechoslovak new wave it was the Family Film School Right. And, and I think those institutions whether it's a magazine or a building is a means of concentrating people, is a means of facilitating discussions and when you have that everybody brings something to the pot which yeah. they can either exchange or take out and and I think that's an important thing at the moment. And I think that traditionally, if you look at historically, when cinema was in its infancy, which for me personally, it's kind of funny in the way that every every decade I get older, it's like my interests go further and further to the beginning of cinema. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that... Uh, at the beginning of cinema, you didn't have any films to refer to. So your only references were theatre, painting, literature, uh, and all of those questions. How to frame shots, right. how to construct space, what, what to use cinema for. It, the, the, those were all po- exciting possibilities. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that's why 
I'm probably more interested in the history of cinema than contemporary cinema. Uh, I, I have no desire to keep abreast. I, I will wait for people like uh, you to actually actually mention a title. I'll make a note and seek it out. Yeah. But I don't put myself through the, the ringer of going to festivals just trying to seek out stuff. That doesn't hold any interest to me. Right. Uh, but I think it's that, that cross-fertilization of kind of uh, skill sets uh, and, uh, and of ideas is what makes that cinema so rich in its infancy. And, and I think that's what we really need. I think the wrong people are making films, uh, yeah. basically. It, it, there's no need for a film school anymore. Basically, it would be nice for someone, you know, you know, someone to come out of an anthropology course and then, okay, now you make a romantic comedy. Right. Uh, that, that kind of thing, you know, I, I would yeah. like to see... I would like to see people making films who would not, who who look at film as a medium. Uh, I'm not. It's just I'm not interested in seeing another permutation, another genre mashup. Yeah, uh, I've got nothing against genre per se. Right. But I, it's just this 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 feeling of um, of familiarity. Yeah. And, and and this kind of I don't smile. I mean, it, we're joking about references, but it's how those references are deployed, and it's it's I don't feel any. I don't feel part of a community of semi-literate hipsters, you know. Right, right. And you know, it's it, it's just not not an attraction, and I don't want to be part of that. And uh, you know, the interesting thing with someone like Peter is the fact that yeah, there are a lot of film references, but there are a lot of music references and everything else. Yeah. Uh, that, but but at the same time, you know, it, it would be um, how how do you explain? Now we live in a time when it's increasingly important to explain what the hell is going on. And, 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 and I do think that filmmakers have a responsibility of addressing that, but not necessarily in an earnest, kind of solemn and right. heavy way. Didactic. Could, right. could you find a way through genre or through the intersection of genres uh, and visual means, uh, the kind of obliqueness of dialogue and everything else, to, to, uh, to analyse, to, to, to dissect, to assault you know, right. various machinations in society. And that's what I would like to see. If someone was listening to this and had like some kind of fantasy about opening their own repertory theater, is there any common mistake that you see upstarts make more frequently in terms of um, beyond like, you know, maybe underestimating the interest of their community? Is it the, um, is it the costs of, uh, of shipping? No, I mean, if anything, I think now it's cheaper than ever for certain types of things. Like, I mean, if you're not doing 35 millimeter film, mm-hmm. um, you know, shipping is barely an issue, you know? Yeah. Um, even 16 millimeter is not that expensive to ship. So, you know, if you do, if you are sort of a film purist and you want to do films and like do 16, you know, there's lots of prints out there and it's not that expensive to ship a whole bunch of them. So, um, I think the biggest mistake, which you already said, the biggest mistake anybody makes with programming is thinking that just because you have good taste and you pick a good movie, that that means people are going to come to it. You know, it's like you can pick the best movie ever made and maybe no one's ever seen it, but they've all heard that it's the best movie they've ever, that's ever been made and you can get all the press, but it doesn't mean anyone's going to come, you know, and it can be really really depressing, really disheartening, you know, you could be like, there were times when, when I would program things at Cinema Muerte or I would program things for the criminal cinema where I was just distraught, you know, I was just like, 
because because to you it's like you're doing the coolest thing anyone could ever do you're fulfilling your dream you know you're helping a filmmaker to have his film shown you are you're running your own business it's like to you it's like everything's aligned perfectly and this is all you know amazing and when you realize that other people don't share that dream or that enthusiasm or they really don't give a shit mm-hmm. that uh they yeah they just don't give a shit you know um it can be so heartbreaking, you know, but the thing that I also realized over time, um, and I think I learned this from working at the Alamo too, is that you have to realize that just because something is your dream doesn't mean anyone is obligated to help you fulfill that dream. No one is. No one is obligated to help you. And you can't be mad at people if they don't want to spend their money that they earn to support your dream, you know? Um, and I think that when I first started doing it, I would get really mad at my friends, you know? Like, so it'd be like, if my friends didn't show up to everything I did, I would get really mad at them, you know? And I'd be like, oh, you, like, I'd just be really disappointed in them and whatever. And over time, I just had to let that go because I'm just like, if you need your friends to come to every screening you do for your business to survive, then you don't have a good business. (laughs) (laughs) This is probably getting a little bit ahead, but there was an episode of Director's Club that I thought was really fascinating about the notion of feeling like a monk building a monastery inside oneself. Um, Like that degree of helplessly, obsessively seeing everything just for like this impossible task of like having all the film knowledge, like having that experience of everything. And I guess, I guess when people can find a way to channel that into a project, so it isn't just relentless viewing, but it was also kind of in theory, like, you know, making it for the better good of other (laughs) viewers. Do you, do you feel like, well, first of all, can you, can you, can you clarify just, just in your own words, what that, that feeling was about? And, and do you still feel that way? I absolutely still feel like that. I like I like there's you know there there's monks there there are monks who their entire lives are dedicated to going to a library and then taking the library book out were I should say to, uh, taking the library book out and then transcribing page by page the knowledge in that book the concept being once they finish that they will have a copy of that book that they can take you know back to their monastery and their whole life is about sort of accumulating this knowledge and it's it's you know film is a thing i'm not i'm i'm an atheist i don't have a god but like film is this thing that is much larger than myself that i return to that i find satisfaction in and i find joy in and i find a sense of self-worth in because i do feel like i understand it to a certain extent um and i do I want to know the wholeness of it and you can't, you know, like that's, and that's the same, same is true of God. Like, you know, you know, God, God is, God is without limits. God is everything and everything and everything. And you can't know it. Um, and film is the same way. You can be the person who says, all right, well then fuck every comedy, fuck every drama, fuck every war movie. I'm horror. I'm just going to do horror. That's me. You can try to see every horror movie you can, but you're not going to see them all. Like every point of it that you look at, you can't contain it unless you – I mean even, even even if you limit it yourself to, okay, I'm going to be the guy who is into Fassbinder and I'm going to look at Fassbinder's work. Then you've decided, okay, I'm going to be the person 
who understands the whole of another human being. And you can't do that either. You know, you can see every movie in Fassbender's filmography. You can see them all seven times, but like you're never going to capture that ultimate goal, which is to understand uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like you still have that desire if only because the that feeling of pushing into virgin ground that you haven't been before. I mean, I don't know how it is for you, but like the first time I saw uh, Stagecoach, mm-hmm. it was this explosion in my head because Stagecoach is one of the greatest things ever. And then I realized, oh, fuck, I thought I didn't like old westerns, so I didn't have to think about them. And now there's like – you know, most of the movies that were made in the in in the 30s and 40s were westerns, and now I realize that I should watch those as well. And it's this like wonderful feeling of potential, and it's and you're you're always chasing that feeling of potential, I think. But also, it is this feeling that, well, eventually all of this is going to lead to me, <laughs> if not having a career, then at least doing something that helps others and. I don't I don't know if that's actually the case but that is the that is the lie that you that you hold inside Mate no 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 Homer you have the royal um Sampler. Oh, I win again, don't I? Podcast Director's Club. Podcast Director's Club. I like my women, but I like Kyan. Ladies and gentlemen, in real time, you're about to experience something. Patrick and I have the same number one, I think. <laughs> really? Which is crazy. Do you want to go ahead and play that voicemail? Well, hello, my friends at Director's Podcast, and Happy New Year's Eve. This is Andrew Sensenig. Uh You may know me as the sampler from Upstream Color. And just wanted to call in for your end-of-year show and looking at things over this incredible 2013 and share some thoughts with you. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you very much for your support and encouragement of our film, Upstream Color. Being able to portray the sampler has been one of the highlights in my career, and the film itself, each time I watch it personally, it just uh, continues to move deeper and deeper into my psyche somehow. And this year was such an incredible year for independent film and studio film, and it's very nice to see the small films being placed on top ten lists right there against the biggest budget films out there. So very exciting for that. I could go on and on with the different films I love, but I have to say the couple that absolutely stood out for me, outside of Upstream Color, of course, but I may be a little bit biased as a pig lover. Um, I look at Ain't Them Body Saints, which David Lowry's film that was just a beautiful linear piece of poetry and cinematography with phenomenal performances by their three lead actors. Uh, and then another one that just really took me by surprise was Spring Breakers. And I didn't go into that thinking it was going to just grab me and take me on that roller coaster ride the way it did. It was something, the title and the poster don't necessarily draw you into what the story actually is. So I highly recommend Spring Breakers. And on the documentary side, uh, the act of killing just killed it. No pun intended, but uh, some, you know, one of those rare documentaries that comes along like that in a, in a, in a long, long time. So definitely something to see. 
I wish you guys at the Director's Podcast a wonderful 2014, and everybody that listens in, uh, I wish you success and happiness and hugs and laughter and the ability to watch and make many, many more great films together. Happy New Year, guys. Wow. The key, one of the key figures from our favorite movie of the year. Upstream color. What's this little surprise you have for me that you've been teasing? We got um, another list. Okay. We have another email from some guy named Shane Carruth. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I never heard of him, but he says that, Hello, Jim. Everything out this year is garbage. And by garbage, I mean about 20 other words everyone says that does not belong in a polite email. The exceptions I can remember are inside out, because it actually increased the vocabulary kids have to talk about their experiences while simultaneously not being boring. Fine. I cried when Bing Bong sacrifices himself. And also, I really liked The Lobster for completely dismantling the language of adult relationships, which it's valuable too. Best direction goes to the studios who have perfected the marketing sleight of hand trick of convincing us their films have importance while creating things we are all better off not thinking about. Sincerely, Shane. <laughs> that is a real, is a real email from Shane Carruth. Absolutely. Oh, man. Barbarian Sound Studio. You can also take the Laskowski approach and watch it while you're falling asleep. And be assured your dreams will be fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Um, that sounds th- good. It happened with computer chess and this one. A, a dick ejaculating the camera in 3D. And I've honestly never been that attracted to Robert Redford ever. Like, he's just never been my type, I guess. But somehow in 2013, a 77-year-old Robert Redford, I would... And this is, you know, this is a big movie. It's a movie that ended up on a lot of people's different, you know, end of year lists and stuff. For me, the main takeaway with this movie was, oh, wow, 77-year-old Robert Redford, super, super hot. I find that really sexy. I, 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 I can go with you on that. Uh, right? Um, I, thought, I thought it was a sexy moment when he tried to seduce the shark. <laughs> I really did. You, that's, how, that's what you got out of that scene where he's yeah. fishing. And the shark eats his fish. That was him trying to seduce a shark. <laughs> hey, baby, check out all the fish I got. Oh, you know what? Oh, I no, that's, I'm sorry. I was confusing it with Leviathan. I write on Letterbox because it's an easy thing to do that is – it's it's methadone because I'm not on Facebook anymore. <laughs> like that's that's what Letterboxd is. Like that's what Twitter is. That's Because I'm not on Facebook and I'm not on Twitter and I don't see anyone anymore. But if I just write down – you know, seven sentences about every movie I see, and then someone likes it, then it's fucking little dopamine rush. Like, it's just methadone. Like, I don't think it's actually anything. I'm not... I don't have... I'm not a good writer. Like, I might have... I think I understand film. I think I have an intuitive understanding of cinema. Do you ever feel like a monk? Do you ever feel like you've sort of just dedicated your life to this thing that doesn't (laughs) <laughs> respond back to you and uh, you know like fucking uh, Purple Rose of Cairo style where it's just like the movies don't love you back um, do you ever feel like you've dedicated your life to building this thing inside of yourself that you don't even know what you're building you're just sort of like well I need to see this movie well why because I've never seen that movie well why do you need to see it well why is that important 
because I need that in me. <laughs> like, <laughs> do you ever feel like that this like compulsive film watching is almost just like a like a, like a, a sort of mental an obligation at this or, point? or a mental monastery? It's this fucking uh, it's it's this uh, it's this mental hospital that you've uh, committed yourself to it's this it's a jail cell it's a jail cell that you embrace it's this uh it's this monastery that you know you're you're embracing um that you're dedicating your life to a single thing and it's not even that's the thing that's like it's not even like i'm a film writer that is my career therefore in order for me to advance in my career and to be the best possible film writer I need to have this knowledge in my head. Mm-hmm. For me, I need to have that knowledge in my head just because it's a fucking obsession. It's a weird thing. I've but it keeps myself. you sane. I'll, yeah. Well, that's debatable. But <laughs> <laughs> but like, I don't. You do you have a feeling like you're building something? Like every movie you see, you're building something. This means in, something inside of you. This not, is important. Not not out of uh, mashed potatoes, but like, no. I'm spending somewhere near like twenty to thirty hours. Of my week, which is almost a full-time job, towards this thing inside of me for what? I mean, I'm still going to do it. I'm not going to stop. Well, you're, you're doing it for pleasure. Yes, you're, that's you're, part of it. You're doing it also because it's almost a part of your narrative, too. Like, it's it's yeah. it's consistent. Okay. <laughs> like, you've been doing it for so long that it, it, it would feel weird not to do it. That's. I think there's actually a lot to that. I think there's something about... And I'm sorry that this podcast just went way the fuck off. It's turning into a Mark Marin interview. This podcast just went in the fucking stratosphere. I don't know what the fuck this is now, but I'm I'm building myself into something. It's this, yeah, like it's like this building inside of me, or this building that I am becoming, or something. But I still don't know what to to what purpose it is. I always go. I'm just doing this because I'm not married with kids yet. (laughs) Because <laughs> when the time comes, and if so it comes, just, you're just killing time. Yeah, a little bit. You're, Sometimes you're just I think that's a, that's a part of it. Not that's not the whole reason, obviously, mm-hmm. but I think that's a part of it. Like I think once that time comes, because I always hear that. I always hear like, once you're married and you have kids, say goodbye to all yeah. the things that you used to love to well, do for I mean, hours and it. hours. That's the other thing. I'm never going to be married and have kids. So like that's just that's just out of the picture. You don't think you'll watch like uh, Birth of a Nation ever? No, like a three-hour silent film. If I have a guest who really wants to do D.W. Griffith, but so you would have to have some other. But so you don't have inside of you the motivation to ever see Birth of a Nation. I don't think I do. No. Okay, no. and then say like I, I uh, guess if I was becoming a film professor, I would feel obligated to do it. But you know, right? So it would have to be some outside thing. Yeah, I think so. Um, what's another thing you're just like that you? What's another sort of hole in your? Have you seen much Bergman? Only like two or three. Do you want to see a lot of Bergman? I kind of do. Okay, so Bergman's there. So, okay, so for you, it is about things that you are personally. I remember being turned off by Fassbinder. Like I kind of went, I don't know if I want to see all of his. Okay, so so you don't think like I liked a couple of them that I saw, but I was like, I can't. I don't know if I could. So without so without outside motivation. You don't think you're going to watch more Fassbender movies? I don't think so. Okay. It's, it's, it takes so, too much out of me, I think. Sure, sure, sure. So, if, like, for you, you are compelled by, to a certain extent, curiosity, but to a large extent, what you find pleasurable to watch. Yeah. Okay. So, like, if you had seen two or three Bergman movies and you hated them all, 
that would be the end of Bergman for you. That's quite possible. Yeah. But you don't hate the Bergman movies you've seen, I'm Mm-mm. assuming. So you do kind of want to watch more Bergman movies. Yeah. I want to see everything. <laughs> <laughs> People have asked me all the time, people have said, what was it like being in one of the great comedies of all time, one of the great classics? Did you know? That's what, Were you aware, were you cognizant that this was going to be one of the great comedies of all time? And of course, the answer is no. Uh, when, when they gave me the script, it seemed like a good script, but not outstanding. It, it was a script that was very much of the time, if you could cast your mind back to that period in history, there were a lot of slacker comedy, sort of, that featured Bill. Bill Murray in situations where he had no consequences. That That's what Bill always did best. He was kind of the wild and crazy guy who who basically went by his own rules uh, <laughs> And we all loved it, and we all laughed at it, and that was Groundhog Day. But once we started filming the movie, I I believe Bill and I were shooting that first street scene the first day of shooting. I think that was the first day of Groundhog Day when we began shooting. That, hello, Phil, this is me, Ned, Ned Ryerson. Uh, The first day of shooting, something, well, well, I had a weird event happen to me. I had a weird event happen to me. I will share with you. Um, we're starting to shoot, and it's the first first scene of the movie, and it's close to dawn, about 6.30 in the morning. We were gathering out in the street in Woodstock, Illinois, and a crowd of several hundred of the townsfolk had gathered to be an audience to watch us shoot. It was a big event for them. And standing at the front of the crowd was someone I knew from my past it was David Nichols and I'm standing there and David Nichols is looking at me and he gives me a thumbs up now the last time I had seen David Nichols before this was when I was doing Great Balls of Fire in Memphis Tennessee David Nichols was the art director on that film and he was there when my wife Ann and I not at the wedding but he was there when Ann and I got married he was there in the hotel, and Ann and I had our honeymoon at the Radisson Hotel in in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, not a lot of frills there, folks. If, if you're looking for the Radisson, you do get free cocktail weenies and nuts at happy hour, but that's about it. The time before that, I saw David Nichols. Was my first day in Los Angeles, coming out to be an actor. And David Nichols called me up on the phone and said he was working as an art director on the film New York, New York, Would I Like to Come and Have Lunch with Him? And I came and had lunch with David with Robert De Niro, Liza Minnelli, and Martin Scorsese. That was my first day in L.A. And I do believe Robert De Niro even looked at me. Uh, Well, okay. He didn't really look at me. I think he wanted the salt. The first time I saw David Nichols in my life, I was 15 years old. I was doing a one-act, the miser, for my uh, high school one-act play competition. And our speech teacher, Mary Curtis, brought in David Nichols, who was a big star in Dallas at the time, big star in theater, uh, to help coach us as to how to do this. And it was David Nichols who 
gave me my first lessons in comedy. He was telling me about, you know, hit your beat, stop, wait, the comic pause, uh, hit, hit the, be still when you tell your jokes, move on. And it was David Nichols when I was 15 that gave me my first lesson in comedy. And now here I am, X number of years later, on the street. And there David Nichols is for the fourth time in my life. I saw this man giving me the thumbs up at the beginning of our scene in Groundhog Day. And for some psychic, spiritual sort of reason, I thought he had just blessed us. My favorite film of yours is still Waking the Dead. I just think it's criminally underrated. In fact, my favorite scene, maybe, in all your films is when Fielding is confessing to his family at dinner, essentially having a breakdown. Mm -hmm. That moment really captures the feeling of loss in a similar way that Peter Weird captured PTSD with Fearless. Um, It's just an interesting and complicated love story, Two great performances. I just, I love this film. And I, I, I felt like it should have been on a lot more top ten lists and Crudup should have been nominated. Uh, it's just, I just get, I get so ex- enamored with talking about this film. Is this, would you say this is your most personal film today? Because it feels yes. like it. Yes. No, it, that was a very, very personal experience. Um, and a very, uh, in, in the best way. I mean, there's, I mean, obviously Scott Spencer's novel, which I responded to tremendously deeply was all the inspiration for it, but there are things in that film that are literally right out of my marriage. I mean, I've been with the same woman for 29 years, and there's uh. there's dialogue in that film that's like out of my living room and bedroom, and you know, it's so it 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 it, it had that resonance for me. It, it it was you know, it, yeah, it was deeply deeply personal. When I read the book, it reduced me to a puddle. But by, by, I was like 10 pages in, hmm. and I was like weeping um, because. I'm lucky enough to have somebody in my life that that I share that kind of incredible bond with, and the overwhelmingness of thinking about what it would be like to suddenly lose that, um, yeah, spoke to me on a, a kind of deep, deep gut level, and was something that I wanted to try to capture on film. Um, and but I knew I needed great actors, and I knew I needed to go very deep with them, and. You know, luckily, not only were, were Billy and Jennifer wildly talented, but they were incredibly brave human beings and incredibly open human beings and were willing to work in a very deep way. And we rehearsed for, you know, almost four weeks um, and long rehearsal days. I mean, like, as if we were doing a play. I mean, a lot of times in film, rehearsal is a thing that gets pushed to the side. Uh, you say, oh, we're going to rehearse a couple of weeks, and you're lucky if it ends up being an hour here, an hour there, because you're so busy doing everything else, you know, in terms of location scouting and camera tests and this and on this film I just said to everybody it's one of the reasons that I became a producer on my own movies because I was like I didn't want to have to have these arguments all the time about you know where the resources were going and I was like if it costs us a little extra money I'll, I'll save it somewhere else but rehearsal time in this movie is crucial because we have to explore what this relationship is and because the nature of the book and, and the nature of, of my script was that you're jumping around in time like crazy and there's a lot that you don't see on camera and if we don't explore what all those moments between are, then those scenes won't feel real and rich and emotional the way they need to. Um, so we need to, as a creative team, not only explore and rehearse what's in the movie, but we have to know all the stuff that isn't in the movie. Um, because the, the nature of the story is you're seeing highlights, you're seeing moments. But yeah. if you know what's around those moments, that's not, you know, Billy's breakdown is not going to happen if we don't know everything around that breakdown. If, 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 if we as a, an actor and director have really done 
improvisations and explorations and endless discussions about where was he at every step along the way with his emotional arc that he was going through. That's the only thing that allowed that scene to have that power was we, we had created for ourselves a platform to stand on. And that took a lot of time and brave, hard work. And, 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 then, and then him being a goddamn brilliant actor who was willing to go to a very difficult place. And it's funny because that was a tough scene when we shot it. He was, I bet. It took, it took him a while to get there. And he was very, I think, concerned that he wasn't going to get there. But I just knew his talent and that he would. There is an interesting true story about the Bishop of Paris. Hmm. Uh, years ago, the Bishop of Paris, or might even been the Archbishop, I'm not sure, but up there in the Catholic hierarchy, um, started letting homeless people into Notre Dame, you know, the signature Catholic church on sure, the island yeah. in the middle of Paris. And, of course, the Vatican and the city and, the, you know, the, the people that matter were very much against this because uh, where is it going to end? First you let them in the church, then, you know. I mean, it was just like... It was Trump, right? The, the you know, and the, the the Christian Church is not known for. Uh, first of all, all the Christians support Trump. Can you believe that? Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. that's an aside. Uh, there was a pushback against that, and the Vatican said, "Kick him out," and he said, "No," hmm. and he resisted. So they, uh, the Vatican, cannot defrocked a. Um, a person of his status, I guess after you're a bishop or an archbishop, you can't be defrocked, but they could punish him. Guess how? Hmm. They could reassign him to the shittiest diocese in the world, right? Oh, and they found one in the Negev desert. There's one godforsaken church in the middle of the Negev, and it's the head church of a diocese back from, the, you know, uh, from 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they assigned him that diocese, basically, it's a giant punishment, right? Right. So he's sitting in Paris. Of course, he has an apartment. He doesn't have to actually live there. And he becomes the Archbishop of the Negative. And he's heard about this new thing called the Internet. <laughs> and so his... his uh, so operating theoretically from his home church in the desert he uh he starts an anti he starts a of a blog that's and preaches on the internet and basically does more harm to the uh, does more help to the homeless and more harm to uh, the vatican than he could ever have done in paris if, he, mm. if they hadn't punished him if they hadn't pushed him out there isn't that interesting? Yeah. And that's a true story. And I'm thinking that maybe maybe Happy Harry could be pushed somewhere. And his life, he th- everyone thinks his life is over and he's made mistakes. He's fought with everybody. He's, you know, he's had 40 years of, uh, of struggle. Yeah. And then work. finally ends up in a place where he refines his voice. And um, and then becomes helpful again to somebody. Um, anyway, so it's a bit like what you're thinking. So yeah, your story I, is a bit like my story. I like both stories. I just like the idea of you know somebody you know a little bit older and you know like in their late forties or whatever 
Well, Christian, how old is he? I don't, I don't know, honestly. He, he's one of those actors that, to me, doesn't really age a whole lot. <laughs> if the script was good enough, he'd do it. He's told me that. That's that's pretty incredible. I mean, I'll, again, like I mentioned last time we talked, his character on Mr. Robot has these really intense speeches at times that I was just like, Oh, yeah. really, eh? It's something that will forever stay with me. I mean, a lot of people cite certain images from a lot of classic horror films, but that that home invasion sequence is just something that I'll I'll never forget. And anytime I rewatch it, I get the exact same feeling I get when I first saw it when I was twelve, and just completely freaked out. I think it's just it puts you in a, a very voyeuristic position, um, and that alone is chilling. Yeah. Well, the initial intent was, you know, violence is entertainment. We, we sort of compare and contrast. There's the early scene with uh, Ray Atherton gets a TV over the head. Right. And so in comes Henry and Otis, and you know who they are, and you know they're murdering, you know, bastards, and <laughs> not people to, to, to toy with. And this guy, Ray Atherton, he's, he's big and nasty looking and unsavory, and he's rude, and he starts giving them a hard time. And you know what's coming. And, you know, and because he's, he's such a sleazy character, you are given, uh, you know, a pass to wish him dead uh, <laughs> and and to root for, you know, uh, what yeah. happens. Let's go, go get him, Henry. This guy's got it coming. And it happens. And it was fun and it's funny. Uh, and it's violence as entertainment. It's like, this is what you're used to. You know, Rambo. Oh, these bad guys. Good. Shoot them. You know, shoot them. Shoot the hell out of them. Blow them to bits. Uh, kill them all. And wow, that was fun. It's like, okay, and maybe this is what it looks like to murder a real innocent family. And how much fun was that? And not only, I mean, I was, the initial idea was for us as filmmakers to implicate all of us for hmm. entertaining you with violence, to gratify you with, you know, m- murder and mayhem and blood. And then, but in the real world, it probably looks more like this. And how do you like that? And, but the way we, you know, we chose to cut it was to, to, to reveal the footage. You think you're seeing it as it's happening, but then the camera starts pulling back from the footage and you realize you're not seeing the viewfinder. You're seeing the TV. And you're sitting right there with Henry and Otis watching this as your entertainment. And then it's one of those moments. It's like it's like the moment you realize that Henry is the good guy in the movie. It's like, oh, it's very uncomfortable to realize that this is what I do. I sit here and entertain myself with this horror, true horror. And again, when we shot, we shot two takes of that scene, and and there was literally no crew. There was one guy, and uh, and the cinematographer. But Michael shot the first half of it till the camera dropped, and uh, you know it's it's uh, after we cut on the second take, uh, it was clear that that was the one. And I just looked at every you know everyone in the room, and I said, none of us are going to heaven after shooting this scene. <laughs> I'd be remiss in not asking about music for Egon Schiele because it's yeah. such an important work of art, in my opinion, to me. Um, so how inspired are you by other mediums? Because, um, you know, th- my whole podcasting endeavor revolved initially around film as much as I adore music pretty much equally. Uh, and clearly... You know, Egon Shield is one of the greatest painters and artists of all time. Uh, yeah. I'm just curious what that process was like um, recording music for that piece, and 
I also know that you did that score for Marion County 1938, and I would love it if you would work on a feature film, do, doing a score for a feature film at some point in the future, because your 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 work is uh, would be very complimentary, I think, to uh, to uh, translating to film in general. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I keep hoping for that call from Sofia Coppola's, you know, yeah. or Terrence Malick or something, but. Exactly. I, you know, I was, you know, working with experimental theater companies in in Louisville at that time, and and this company from Chicago came and did a couple of pieces in Louisville, and so I worked with them to make, you know, music for their production. And so I was in the, you know, I was in the room from the beginning and making music for the piece they were working on. And Aegon became this very large scale project that. I was originally hired to play piano music of the era, which would have been Roselle, Satie, um, and Schoenberg. And, you know, I learned half of that music and was in rehearsals with it until it became obvious that we needed more flexibility. And <laughs> so after spending all that time learning that music, the director's like, well, wouldn't it be just easier, you know, better if you just wrote something for this? <laughs> and so... Um, you know, I was like, yes, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so I, you know, I did hop on the wagon of thinking that that would be a better way to go because there was choreography. There was a lot of choreography. There was very little dialogue and there were slides. There was no moving film. Oh. But, um, you know, the subject matter was already, you know, just more than any one of us felt we could handle entirely on our own but we're absolutely ravenous to do so you know to try and um so anyway i had a few weekends of rehearsals in chicago where i would just go up again taking my little trusty uh portable cassette player you know and um just improvise to rehearsals um and eventually i you know i came up with a few like a handful of five three to five motifs um, again, thinking about the bigger structure, the idea was that this is a, this is a story of his life. It's a traditional biography from you know young age through his work and his unfortunately early death. So, you know, what's the context of his family life? What is his spirit like? What is his work progress like? What is the context of Europe at this time, world at this time? So, I tried to come up with you know, basic motifs for each subject. So there was a motif for family life. There's a motif for him as a, as a painter, you know, exploring his own work, which was the self-portrait series. Um, there's a motif sort of for his relationship with his models and his um, girlfriends. And her, his main girlfriend, Bali Neufel, uh, I actually don't remember her last name. Um, and then his later wife, Edith, um, and then there's kind of more of a the sort of family theme, kind of more since it's sort of more of a global theme because, you know, his and his deaths were part of the influenza epidemic. Um, so, you know, there was just a bigger story there altogether, which was that a third of Europe or something perished and flew after having survived what, you know, was the most devastating war in history mm-hmm. that continent. Um, been a great number of them also 
died from the flu. So it was a very epic story and with a very tragic ending. And yeah. so, you know, there was a huge story already built in. His work is so amazing, so poignant, so intimate. Certainly wasn't any lack of inspiration, you know. <laughs> um, for me, it was just a matter of trying to harness that into something that would be focused on the scenes that we were making in the play, the choreography, um, and something manageable that could be played with the three instruments that we were going to have on hand, which was... I had hoped would be viola, cello, piano from the, the players from Rachel's, but Christian and Eve were not available to do the run. Um, you know, they're both in school or had full-time jobs. I don't remember exactly what. But So I hired people from Chicago to, or the director hired them to play for the run. Mm-hmm. Shortly thereafter, you know, the Chicago label had come to the play and really loved the music and approached me about trying to do it as a recording and do it as a Rachel's release. So at that time, we didn't waste much time. We just were like, yeah, we'd love to do that. <laughs> I'm sure you've got. I'm sure you've gotten this question before, but where does the room outside? Where does that name sort of derive from? Um, it is a, I saw it in Santa Fe. Uh, my sister and I had a friend that was 92, is 92. Oh, wow. This lady is amazing. She just, she was a rock collector. She had a, a huge uh, succulent greenhouse with all these exotic types of plants and just a very interesting woman. She had a very interesting library, and looking through that, uh, one day we we were reading this book on gardening, and it referred to the garden as the room outside. Oh, yeah, and that's we said, great. "That's it right there." That it just says so much. Uh, yeah, so it, and it's a perfect description for all those desert feelings. <laughs> sure, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Moving right along in search of good times and good news With good friends you can't lose This could become a habit Opportunity knocks once Let's reach out and grab it Together we'll nab it We'll hitchhike bus or yellow cab it Cab it? Moving right along Come share it with me Moving right along We'll learn to share the load We don't need a map To keep this show on the road That the, the, the film practice Has always been its own separate parallel track And that I think that there are different pleasures That you receive from movies And that only rarely are they united In something like Alex Ross Perry I think that uh, like the Back to the Future movies And, some, and when I first saw the, the Star Trek remake we're oddly enough. Wow. You know? Yeah. That really ignites a flame where it's like, wow, the movies. Right. But that's a very sort of, but then it's like, where, what is that joy? That joy is, again, it's a nostalgia joy. It's this idea of film going from the 70s and 80s and being a, a gorgeous little, you know, mop headed Spielberg child and seeing <laughs> the movies. Right. You know? Um, and I think that I still absolutely feel that not as much, you know? If ever, I don't know, maybe I'm like a weird, like Damien child, but I've never, but there are specific things I 
undeniably received, receive and continue to receive that charge from, where it's like, the movies. How about Mad Max Fury Road? Yeah, that, that yeah. I, I, undeniably. Um, but I, and then, there, so there's that pleasure, and then I think that there are other pleasures that you get you know, I think that there there are pleasures where it's like you're watching it as a filmmaker, for example, and like this is something that I could do. This mm-hmm. is something that's really engaging. You know, I think that there there are different ways that you consume, different flavors of consumption. And I don't think that one is necessarily the best. But I do know that I do not watch like Mad Max Fury Road and immediately think, how can I do Mad Max Fury Road? <laughs> But there are people who do that. You know? I'm sure. No, I'm sure people walk out of that movie feeling inspired to think, oh, man, I want to get to that level. Yeah. But, you know, something lo-fi, something indie, um, and something that felt really visceral and immediate, like Evil Dead 2, and the way the camera was just so, yeah. uh, you know, alive. Yeah, Evil Dead 2, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a very much a key movie for you, yeah. right? Oh, clearly, yeah. yeah. And, 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 I mean, has there yeah. been something recent like that? Because, like, to me... When I walked out, of, like a lot of people feel differently, but when I walked out of It Follows, I, I thought if I was 18 years old and I saw this movie, it would make me want to make movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I like I'm, all, I'm already in, in my head. In my head, I'm already like making movies. True, you know? true. Like that's so. There's no like. I don't usually think, "Wow, I want to make movies," because I'm all because there's. It's already I, there. I, yeah, yeah there's, the seed there, has already been planted. Yeah, the seed has already growing. been planted, and and uh, you know, there's always. There's always something like uh, cooking or something that I'm working on. Let's just call it the acid drip sequence. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know? when you're gonna when you're gonna have a chapter in your story called "Going Beyond Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite," yeah, I'll be darned okay, if okay. I'll be darned if he didn't do just that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like to me, 2001 is uh, like the greatest film that's been made so far. And for a whole number of reasons, is it reasons, your favorite movie? Um, it is my favorite movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, uh, it is, um, uh, I mean, and for a whole number of reasons. And one of which is that like, I'm kind of like shocked that human beings made it. <laughs> I'm maybe, maybe Kubrick that's how made, I feel when it's over. Yeah. I mean, like who could, who could have thought, who could have thought of it? Who could have put it together? Who could have made like such a such a composition where like it has moments of of effects that were invented that still hold up today? And yet, when he when the story or the path that the the path that the movie takes you requires it, you get the most amazing collections of color and light, which is like the basic building blocks of film, and yeah. and present it in a way that will blow your mind no matter what drugs you may or may not be taking at the time <laughs> like as as for what as for what to is as happens in the end i mean and it ties into like what i think kubrick kind of brilliantly did on the story which he could collaborated with arthur c clark uh, i have to admit to cheating a little bit because after i had seen that initial reel at the museum of science and industry i got the book before and and to the extent that Does the book make more sense the book Yes, the book makes gives you one very logical, plausible explanation for all the events that happen in the story. Aliens, um, they are considered to be aliens. That's right. Okay, and um, and according to the book, um, um, it is um, when Bowman arrives, like after this crazy visual sequence where you don't know how to even fit these these images in your own head. Mm-hmm. But then he arrives at a what appears to be like a Victorian, a Victorian um, uh, uh, drawing room, and he then sees himself 
in different uh, as uh, progressively older, and then finally, as he's like apparently nearing his dying moments, he the monolith makes a re- the monolith makes a reappearance. And uh, you know, I know the way this movie plays, especially when it plays in seventy millimeter. It starts off with the overture, <laughs> right? Right. You know, so that that haunting piece uh, by by what's his Gr- name? Gregory Leggetti, I believe. Yeah, Leggetti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that you know that plays whenever the monolith appears. Correct. Right. Right. That's <laughs> right. That's so cool. Like you're right. Every time the every time it appears, you have this music and what the overture. You have this strange music playing, and right, you as yeah. an audience member are staring at a, a monolith, at a, at a faceless black rectangular figure. The first yeah. monolith, the first monoliths could be delivered to an audience without them even noticing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think that's I I think that's intentional. I think Kubrick is he's always been kind of playful with the audience, even in a movie that's kind of mostly serious, like two thousand one. You know, even even a moment like the the instructions for using the toilet. I yes, think right. that's that's his sense of humor. That's him like commenting on how absurd uh, society can get and how detailed he can get. Um, almost like making fun of himself, I think, to some degree. <laughs> right, right. One of the themes I love in Hitchcock that I already talked about is like this theme of performing or of being um, someone you're not through like for an extended period of time. Like, yeah. Um, and also, I was actually just watching this scene where um, Cary Grant and her um, are actually in love, but then they also um, are pretending to have had an affair um, to throw off Claude Rains' character as he catches them exploring his, his wine cellar. The best moment in the film. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's also, it's like a really beautiful love story also, aside from, I think I like Hitchcock the most when you just get to experience these, like, thrilling moments, like, they're de- the deep romance in this movie, that long extended kiss scene that um, thwarts the production code is also <laughs> really cool. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I, um... The strength of this movie is the relationship between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman to where, again, like the whole, um, the, the, the grains of, not sand, it might have been sand, but like, there's another MacGuffin. There's mm-hmm. another thing like, oh, we're, we're looking for something in this wine cellar. What is it? And what can it be? And what does it mean? And apparently it's just like, um, like, uh, some sort of... Um, chemical that they use to make atomic weapons. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Who cares what Claude Rains is up to, really? Um, you know, it's something I, I don't know if we brought up earlier on because it hasn't come up yet, but this could be the first example, at least in the films that we're talking about, of uh, of a codependent relationship with a mother figure that Claude Rains kind of has. It's more in the That's background right. here. Yeah. You know, it's not prevalent, but it's there in that like, you know, Claude Rains is like, Mom, give me the damn key! <laughs> I'm going to say something. Don't say Vlad Boogie Nights. I'm going to say you. that shit. Don't say it. I'm going to say that. I'm not saying that uh, Summer of Sam is a better made film than Boogie Nights. I'm not saying Summer of Sam is necessarily a better acted movie than Booger Night. Booger <laughs> Nights. Booger Nights. I'm just going to go with Booger <laughs> Nights now. Uh, I think Summer of Sam is a better movie than Booger Nights. (laughs) (laughs) 
It, I mean, we didn't cause uh, debatable. We didn't cause nine eleven. <laughs> I don't even I get don't into. Know. I don't want to even get into all that. Not even. Well, not. Let's not, get Alex Jones on the no, show. No, no, not in that way. But in the way that we create Islamic extremists by whatever. I'm not even getting even into that. But um, I think that has set us down to the path where now Trump is a serious contender for the president of the United States <laughs> oh, of America, God. and that is all. That all ties back to. Uh, hatred and xenophobia and American exceptionalism and everything that was all spurned on by 9-11. And it feels like there's this other path we could have gone. We could have we could have been a nice country. <laughs> and like that whole ending where he's thinking about the life he could have had, it, it I just I just fucking weep. Because that's oh, like, that's, know, just, that's right? just what it means to me is like it could have gone the other way. It feels like maybe it could have gone the other way. But now like Barack Obama has been at war longer than any American president in history, and we'll probably just be at war for the rest of our history as a nation. Like, yeah. it's, it's fucking tragic. And I don't know, like, I'm, I'm sorry to get political, especially because I'm not an informed person. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not, I, 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 have a lot of, I have a lot of anger and anxiety, but I don't have a lot of actual fucking facts. So you could be rolling your eyes at home, and that's fine. But, like, that that's what this movie <laughs> means to me. And also, it's like a perfect character study and it's just a perfect script it's a perfect story um, perfect acting from everybody yeah yeah everyone everyone is fantastic um it was interesting that as you were you were talking about your thoughts on america that the sunshine went away for a while oh yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> i was I, like I, yeah. the, why the room gets so dark because, as you're saying all this because god agreed with me and the <laughs> sun just went behind a cloud and i'm so lonesome i could cry yeah <laughs> <Pretty much. laughs> particularly one line he says which is <laughs> the most classic line ever in a movie. Um, oh, you can say it. <laughs> it. Now I'm trying to remember the line. No, it's not God is not dead. It is God was wrong. God was wrong. Right. <laughs> I saw that in a movie that it gets, gets one of the biggest laughs. God was wrong. Right. Well, but a laugh of discomfort, I would think. Right, the build up to it, and it's the perfect punchline when you see the build up. And eventually, it, he slips into insanity. Yeah, it's you know. total psychosis. Right. And it ends with a really knockout fight scene. <laughs> it's, it's pretty Oh, impressive. my God. I love that. <laughs> Between him and Water Mathau. Yeah. Which is pretty, in, pretty impressive. But, once again, the tortured soul. But this time, it, it's, it's also because he's trying to keep up appearances, the pressure of trying to live up to this ideal, which is impossible. And then, once again, but as I said, it manifests itself physically through these pains that he begins to have, these sharp pains. Um, it's an astounding film. It's visually stunning. He does some really incredibly, once again, in scope, mm-hmm. some marvelous framing and composition in this picture yeah i mean it's you, you look at that it's across the board like uh everyone is strong in it i mean simple shepherd you know got a lot of shit f- with her later performances for bogdanovich i don't think quite fairly in, in daisy miller's case but the uh but she's great in it timothy bottoms is fantastic in it she, uh ellen burston you know i mean cloris leachman everybody is delivering um, you know among the best performances that they they've still given to date i think um ben johnson of course got the oscar sort of cloris leachman and yeah uh, they w- deservedly so i mean i that one of the best final 
confrontations in movie history, maybe, when Timothy Bottoms goes back to Cloris Leachman's house. Oh, yeah. That is just... Ugh. <laughs> and, like, you know, you kind of expect a, 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 a normal protagonist to sort of meet her at that level, but he remains so still and quiet that part of it is frustrating and part of it's comforting at the same time. It's like, you know, he's primarily this awkward introvert that has like this kind of boyish innocence about him, but he's also realizing that he has to face these harsh realities of life that people go off to war, people die, um, people fall out of love, or you know, some relationships can't come into fruition because of circumstance or whatever. And like all of his, he, he's just depleted at that point. And all he can think to do is just touch her hand. And I think that's really one of the best moments in the movie. Yeah, because you yeah, know why he's doing it. Yeah, I, I, I you know, it, it's. I mean, I, I think there's not a scene in it I would lose, and every, every. Every little throwaway moment feels profound to me. I mean, there's not real. I mean, it's 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 my. You know, there isn't a best film ever made. Like that's you know that's not something you can quantify. But I, in terms of like when people ask me what my favorite film is, I think that film just every every piece of it feels perfect to me. So it's just one that easily comes to mind when 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 asked. But uh, I, I was reminded, unfortunately, that watching it this time of our of our new president when. Uh, <laughs> When uh, uh, Bobby in the kitchen, uh, you know, does a little pussy grabbing without even asking. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) This was locker room talk. Which has, unfortunately, now, you know, a different feel to it. We just end this with bye. Please visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. You can email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit me at Twitter at Instant Gym. I'm at Patrick Krapol. And that'll about wrap it up. Thanks, guys. We'll see you soon. We really do love you. Enjoy the rest of the clips. Hi, welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapol. And I'm Jim Laskowski. How you doing, Jim? Pretty good. How you doing? Good. I uh, just started this new podcast. Kind we of excited sh- about we it. We sure did. I'm really excited about it as well. Yeah. Your next title, gentlemen. Mike. The title is The Butt X-Files. Shit, I'm having a Jimmy Fallon moment here. The, the title is The Butt X-Files. <laughs> Don't say it again, I'm gonna laugh. Gay porn, straight porn, or just some shit I made up. <laughs> I think I still <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say straight because there's definitely a Scully character if it's an X-Files pattern.
All right. And Jim, the butt X-Files. I'm going to say straight as well. You are both correct. It is a straight porn. Oh, What is it? I remember when I saw an interview where he was talking about uh, Django and he was saying that it was the hardest script he ever wrote. And I was like, oh, I wonder why. And then it was because, um, what's that guy's name? Alan Ball. Yeah. This was his next door neighbor and he had like a outrageous bird that like, <laughs> that, like uh, made noises all the time. And then so I was like, interest peaked. So I like looked it up and like Quentin Tarantino like, like put like a called the police and like tried to get the bird removed from the apartment and like all this stuff where like while writing Django like he was like dealing with this like bird thing that was interrupting his writing. Oh my god! I just want to see the movie version of this. I'm surprised in <laughs> Django there wasn't like just just cut to a shot of just a bird that exploded. Yeah, yeah, like just one of one of Django's bullets goes flying and, and yeah. kills Candy's like prized parakeet or something. Yeah. <laughs> How could Alan Ball be writing True Blood with an annoying bird? Well, I think he, I think he left True Blood. Uh, and I, okay. I'm gonna stay here on the record. It was because he couldn't write because the bird. Definitely, uh, Matt. Have you seen Dress to Kill? Uh, I have, but not since before I could watch porn. Okay. <laughs> Zoolander fans out there? Uh, I, I I don't like Zoolander, and I really he directed Reality Bites. Did right? you know that Zoolander is Terrence Malick's favorite movie? <laughs> it's not true, is it? It is. Why did he say that? It's, it's in an interview. Look it up online when you get a chance. His favorite movie? I think it's his favorite movie, or like, it's, it's it's something he watches all the time. Apparently, that that which that, is fucked, isn't it? That, that <laughs> that's so strange. Like. Now I'm thinking, like, do you think Malik... He's reevaluating his life. You should see him, folks. Do you think, he's got his hands to you, his face. Yeah, do you think Malik, like, thinks he's a fraud? Whenever we don't know what to watch, we either put on Step Brothers, we fuck, or we put on Step Brothers and fuck, because nothing turns me on more than boats and hose. Mm. For me, it's Shark Week. Yeah. <laughs> it's a movie about a guy who basically has lost the ability to feel pleasure, uh-huh. and when his daughter's around... He feels a little bit of pleasure, right? And then she leaves, and he feels like shit again. And then he makes a phone call trying to connect to somebody, and he can't. Uh-huh. And like he's, this movie should have just been called "Enter the Void," because it is a void. It's like a, a large, you know, ninety-minute representation of nothingness. And I found that nothingness to be hypnotic. It wasn't like I had this epiphany watching it, going, "Oh, I know what that's like," because I'm, I don't. It's not something I related to necessarily. It's something I just found interesting to watch. I don't think it. I think it's probably her least successful movie. I don't even like it as much as Virgin Suicides, but I didn't think it was horrible. I sat there and I was hypnotized the whole time because I was like, "Wow, nothing's happening." Yeah. How interesting. How like Jim, imaginative. I have, I, have, I have another question for you. What do you find that you enjoy movies more if you don't press play? Because <laughs> nothing happens if you just put a movie DVD in the tray. Any mo- that's that's how that's called somewhere edition. Patrick does this to me all the time, and then I, I go name a few. I go to therapy. That's why I go to therapy Saturday mornings. Is it me? Yeah. Because because uh, Patrick and I just shoot Jim down at every yeah. single opportunity. But that's what I'm. Used but he, to. he knows that we love him though. Also, he, knows, he, he says it's all good fun. also pretty much everything that comes out of his mouth is stupid and worthless. I agree. Like, it's kind of astounding that Brian De Palma would make a movie that doesn't feel self-referential, let alone a noir that doesn't feel self-referential, but it doesn't. And I think it actually, I think Josh Hartnett's actually good in it. Um, I like You are out of your mind. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, nice. It, he doesn't wake up and go, oh, that was a weird dream. Yeah, yeah. And then have to have him like wake up in a cold sweat every time. It was, as funny as it would be if they used the exact same clip every time. <laughs> oh, it was all a dream. <laughs> the other thing is, because he is such a cipher, none of these relationships hold any power to me because all he does is stand there passively as Bubba talks to him. That's their friendship. He was his best friend. Why? Because he talked to me as we cleaned up. Like, that. there's no friendship there. There's no interaction. Is that not a friendship? Because there's no interaction. Why? Why is there no interaction? He's a simple person. All he has to do is he's a guy on a bus, sit next to him and treat him like a human being. Oh, for God's sakes, they, they turn out to be friends. Yeah. What no, is I'm it? just saying, that's not... Yeah. They're both right. simple minds. <laughs> and, and this movie celebrates simple minds and it punishes people who try to go their own way. Satire. <laughs> and, I never, and I never saw it that way. It's really strange. I can't quite put my finger on what Wes Craven's problem is, other than just undercutting himself. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned the porno. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> as your other. Oh man, he, he he messes up the ending. <laughs> There's a pretty clear way endings and pornos are supposed to happen. Oh my god, isn't that fucked up? And oh, there's the guy's dick, and this is the craziest thing ever! Ah, like, yeah. Alright, All right, we it's, get it. It's, yeah, we need to get back to a more intelligent. We need to get to more Albert Brooks type comedies. Yeah. And I appreciated them even more, and that would be Bowfinger and Dick! <laughs> I love the way you you, you you have this little twisting little garden pad. You like it's 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 like you're opening an Academy Award envelope or something. Like Andy and the movie I'm going to talk about is <laughs> Bowfinger and Dick. I've not seen Dick. Can you start with no, Dick? Oh man, I love fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. That's what I say to anyone. Who doesn't want me to put ketchup on my hot dog? I'll put bird shit on my hot dog if I want to. I'm not making you eat it. I'm eating it. That's true. Yeah. But. I, I asked for a hot it's, ketchup. With, it's I asked for a hot dog with it's ketchup. Unethical. It's unethical. What the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? What are you, Jewish? Is it unkosher? Yeah. What, what the. I went to Portillo's and I asked for a ketchup with a hot dog. You would think I, I asked for 9-11. <laughs> like, like uh, excuse me, can I have a jihad? I uh, death to America. Like it was literally. People take that really personally. I'm I'm actually just joking. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't understand that. And we live in Chicago, and Chicago. That's, that's the thing. Chicago's fucked up with their hot dogs. They they put like fucking peppers and pickles and mayonnaise and yeah. fucking. They they sometimes they just like crumble dead beetles over it. And I'm glad they, they're not like that about pizza. Like you better get. I, I think deep Chicago, dish. No, I, I think. Well, yeah, they're not. They're not like assholes about deep dish. But I think Chicago pizza is kind of shitty too. What the fuck? It's good. Yeah, Carly, Carly, Carly grew up on deep dish pizza. I think it tastes like butt. I mean, I think a big difference between you and me is like I was. I ran out to see my week with Marilyn just because Michelle Williams was right. In, and, and you've seen both Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants movies. We, we have to go there again. <laughs> This was a big callback to episode three. Now yeah. that I've listened, <laughs> that's when we brought this up. But you love Amber Tamblyn. I, I do, kinda. <laughs> but sorry. I like Michelle Williams a lot more, and I think <laughs> Carrie Mulligan's very talented. Do we have to go through my list or did, something? Did you watch Yes Man? Uh, I don't know if you have ever seen the uh, James Tuback movie Fingers. Uh-uh. There's a lot of uh, following. Uh, <laughs> Sort of Harvey Keitel around, um, you know. Wasn't New York the sequel Street. called The Hand? Yeah, um, 
Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was the arm. Right. And then it was just upper body. <sighs> yeah. That was a, when that did was they, a good. When did, they, when did they get the ass? <laughs> it's, again, it's coming out the end of September, I think. It was a big, it premiered at Con earlier this year. It was a big hit. It's a movie called Drive. Oh, oh my gosh, I want to see that so bad. <laughs> you should play the, the score to Social Network in the background while I'm typing. You can add it in later. I could. Yeah. Or we can just do our own version. Wow, you actually got that. That is how it sounds. The only, knows, the only score I know off the top of my head is uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Or Inception. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Duke is great in it, and um, Bill Duke. You know Shane Black's in it, and Jeff, Jesse Ventura. They, they, you know, they're not given the short stick. They all have sort of characters, and they're all given sort of moments on their own. Right, and th- that's that's a lot to the screenwriter's credit too for fleshing them out. Right. Yeah, they actually have uh, story arcs. Exactly, oh, cool. yeah. and it makes you actually care when they get picked off. Yeah, and I've 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 learned my lesson after seeing this movie to never make jokes about my girlfriend's pussy. Hey, we fucked. Right. And that means nothing to you? This is you're gonna throw it all out because you're afraid of what your dad thinks or whatever? You know what? Fuck you. And I, I fucking hate Jodie Foster and I'll you know, whoa, I still like whoa, 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 now. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> hate contact man, it's it's all contact. Oh God, you're killing me. Jim defends every Zemeckis movie. His favorite movie of all time Except, is Christmas uh, Carol. Shut up. <laughs> no, not, not Christmas Carol. <laughs> but, no, but Jim Jim defends Zemeckis more yeah, than I do. Yeah, very I, much. Uh, and I hate Jodie Foster's voice in that movie what? so much that it it's like nails on a fucking chalkboard. <laughs> and the same with Silence of the Lambs. Like, I love Silence of the Lambs. Are you sure you're not thinking of Nell? <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you hate about her voice? Her accent is you know terrible. What? You know what, Jim? You know what? For every 400 bad puns you make, sometimes you fucking pull nails on fucking nail reference. Oh, God bless you, Jim. <laughs> think, I think a flower will grow in the lungs, and it's like we are plants, and she's made of plants. Sounds like, like most deaf as Michelle got <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing if not a master impressionist. Uh, but the for me, the best Radiohead video is still Just. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> I, had for, I had forgotten all about that. Oh, no. That, that's what do you think it was? What do you think? I, I never, I never want to know. I, if, if somebody tells me, I will I will hurt them severely. I honestly, it's I'm honestly, one of those things that I never want to find out in my life. Because it's Adrian. I, I, with, I really am so disappointed yeah. that she was killed because I would love to see. <laughs> We're all disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> fucking selfish. But I would love to see her grow as a filmmaker. <laughs> I totally agree, though. I mean, it's like, wait. Oh, that was such a strange <laughs> sentence. I knew. <laughs> we had that last time too. I know. Uh, yeah, the sorry. time before. Um, before somebody said the, uh, I forgot about. It was about nine eleven. Remember yeah. that? That was funny. Um, no, nine uh, eleven was funny. Yes. No, what can you say about the fucking ending of this movie? The ending. It's horrible. shit. Yeah, it's completely really anticlimactic and dumb. It's just fucking let's how ironic. Let's play Freebird at the end of this movie, and that's what I feel like Rob Zombie is doing. He's constantly winking, constantly no, winking. There's so, not a lot of winking. like a lot of consciously, you know, um, 
rehearsed things hey, that feel forced. Hey, Jim. The whole movie feels forced. Hey, Jim. What? Do you like Black Dynamite? Yeah. Winking. Okay, my number one, Meeks Cut Off. Um, yes. What do you like about it? Um, I can go into your bathroom right now yeah. and get myself a cup of tap water. Yeah, that's you know? so true. It's right there. It is. It's anywhere. I, 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 I can go to a water fountain at any time. I can get water whenever I want. Any gas station you pass? Yeah. Look at I got I, I drink bottled water like a motherfucker. Him and David Lynch both all got offered wow. and turned down Return of the Jedi. They should have made wow. it together. Can you imagine the Sarlacc pit? <laughs> imagine the Sarlacc pit. This one big vagina. Yeah. But when the main big climax at the end is that he comes back to life due to the sheer power of her love. That's the power of love. That's that's exactly what Huey Lewis was warning about this whole time. I bet, she, I bet she can tighten her pussy muscles just the right way to make you come in ten seconds. Like, that is the perfect, <laughs> perfect line of dialogue like for a virgin 16-year-old. Like, that is perfectly the their mindset everything. That is just incredible. I love that. This is almost, it's, it, it's sadly become kind of a joke, but the MC Hammer video for Can't Touch This is with just his pants. <laughs> I don't remember the. I don't remember it outside of the parachute That's the, pants. Uh, no, yeah, he had the parachute pants, and which you know emphasized his movement. Was, I'm a dastardly. Oh, look at me! I'm dashing, but I, oh, I'm a scoundrel. Ooh. <laughs> I love insane uh, cinematography. I love just just something about him. It, it, he seems like. Uh, he seems like a, a, a guy where if he, if, he was, if he was your neighbor and you needed to borrow some barbecue sauce for that barbecue, he'd be like, fuck yeah, here's your barbecue sauce. <laughs> and that's, every time, anytime I've here's seen your him, barbecue sauce. Anytime I've, anytime I've seen Sam Raimi in interviews, he seems like the nicest, most down-to-earth guy. You need a friend who looks like Vince Vaughn to masturbate. One of Megadeth, the band's worst tendencies, is to, instead of singing the song, to just like read like horrible satirical poetry <laughs> over guitar riffs hello me yeah. eat the real me yeah just like <laughs> just like they say peace is for here but na da 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 just horrible symphony of destruction right yeah we'll do a bonus podcast where we just list off every director yeah that we can think of <laughs> yeah, we're gonna do a we're gonna do a Here's bonus turn a tune of Yakko's world <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm not gonna you know poo poo on you no, I'm not going to shit in your mouth. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, that's why we're good friends, by the way. Yeah. You, you just don't shit in my mouth. No. I do it in your cereal, but... Yeah. But I, I, I don't know, because I eat Cocoa Puffs. Uh, and uh, <laughs> you have a bad diet. So it just comes out like Cocoa Puffs. See, I don't understand how you can hate Cameron. Crow. Well, yeah, that's how it, it feels. Because he's so charming. Yeah, well, I mean, his movie, like... Okay, here's what it's like. It's like a puppy with roses <laughs> in its mouth, okay? And it's trotting along. It's doing that little puppy trot where it's half hopping because its legs aren't powerful yet. Okay. So it's hopping along with roses in its mouth, which is cute and adorable. And, oh, see how wonderful life is? But it, then it takes the rose out of its mouth and goes, Did you see before where I was just trotting around with the rose in my mouth? I really love roses. Uh, puppy, Being a puppy is great. I love roses. And at that point, you just want to punch the puppy. I want to pet the puppy. Yeah. Damn it. We and don't need I fucking sh- Sherry Moon's on going, Shut the fuck up! Oh, and you the, and fucking, the fucking bitch! <laughs>
over enough. Enough. 